Welcome to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. Matthew, we're back for episode 12, our penultimate. I learned that word while watching Game of Thrones. Our penultimate episode. The episode (laughs) before the last episode. It's finally here. You and I have sat down to record this multiple times. Here's a little uh, How the Sausage is Made moment. And I was convinced (laughs) that this was cursed. Matthew lost internet or some shit. I got the flu. And then there was another (laughs) thing. We tried to schedule it. It didn't work. And then I was like, it's just never going to happen. I was afraid to go to the gym today because I thought I was going to have a coronary because Faye was going to go. <laughs> your Achilles like, heel snaps. Your, yeah. And, like, and you hit your throat on the way down. I can't well, talk anymore. I, <laughs> I'm in the hospital saying, why Achilles heel, man? I can't record. I'd record from the, there. I'd just get it on the phone. We'd do whatever we could. We also um, did a little bit of audio troubleshooting. So I think we got all our ducks in a row. Finally, it's happening. Finally. Today, Matthew, chapters 43, 44, and 45. We're going to see all kinds of interesting things. We're going to see the reunification of Gurney and Paul. We're going to see uh, Paul getting a little goofy on <laughs> on the water of life. Space juice getting fucking and, wildly. Uh, it feels like it's building, doesn't it? Yeah. No, we are building. We are crusading, I would say, perhaps, mm. towards, the, towards the conclusion of this. Um, it feels like... I mean, and that's a huge part of what chapter 44 is about is like, this is the moment. This is mm-hmm. the time to strike. It's like, it has presented itself. Here's the opportunity. And now everything is kind of like building up momentum to like go all out. That's basically what they say. Indeed. That yeah. we're be I believe, to go full. I believe Paul refers to it as the moment of maximum effort. Yes. That's <laughs> <laughs> really cool. I, I just like the idea, like preparing for this eventual thing. And then really just making it happen. Economy of force all the way through. And uh, I'm ready, man. (laughs) So why don't we do what we always do, Matthew? Why don't we kick off chapter 43? And uh, do you want to start this one off or, or do you want me to? Yeah, I would love to start this one off because this right here... Might be my favorite Mine chapter too. opening of Mine all too. of them. <laughs> How did I also know that it yeah. might be your favorite? This is a good one. I, right. yeah. You oh, want baby. Your, you want your cue, dude? Ooh, yeah, hit me. All right, here we go. When law and duty are one, united by religion, you'd never become fully conscious. Fully aware of yourself, you are always a little less than an individual. I love From, it when you talk dirty to me. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Get on board this train. That's a good From, one. <laughs> from Muad'Dib, The 99 Wonders of the Universe by the Princess Irulan. Mm. Yeah, that is relevant. <laughs> always. Always. <laughs> Law and duty are one. Right. Yeah, when it's you're you're struggling to separate. This is it's funny because I read this opening a few times, and I and I thought about it quite a bit because I think it's it's interesting because one of the things you'll see in a, in a show like Star Trek is there's always this struggle between law and duty. A lot of it is duty versus morality. Like my duty says X, but is this the right thing to do? And you make that decision, typically speaking, as an individual, right? 
we all decide as individuals what to do. That's one of the beauties of being a human being. And I think one of the beauties of this book, and one of the things that Herbert was trying to get across was, again, the animal consciousness versus the human's consciousness. One reacts, one thinks. And, um, and I like that because that thinking gives you a, a very specific type of agency. And um, this chapter, open, seems to suggest that, quite plainly, when law and duty are one united by religion, you never become fully conscious. Um, you're always a little less than an individual. Indeed, because your identity matters less against the group dynamic. And that yeah. is wild. Yeah. And I think, you know, this story especially, and, and we obviously quite haven't gotten to the biggest battle yet. Um, but but I think, you know, as far as the warfare goes, like this is this is this is almost the consciousness required for for you know a band of people to rise up and act with a huge collective force to overthrow something they they throw they're throwing their literal lives at it mm-hmm. um and I'm like that's that's laying that there's so much in the fervor of their cause that they're just like so zealous that they would throw their lives unthinkingly toward its goals right. um and I'm like once you have people that rabid <laughs> <laughs> you have an entire force of people that are that fervorous and dedicated and not even individuals anymore. They've just absorbed into this single-minded goal. Um, and they're acting as like a weird swarm almost, you know? Yeah. Um, once you have that, like, holy shit, what a thing to be afraid of. And, and, it, and, it, and it really relies heavily on ensuring that your group identity it's re- it really relies upon making sure that the other group is barely human, right? right. And a lot of times that happens, sadly, to be the case. And, and, and you can just read any history book and you can see that. But besides that, how it applies to Dune, which I think is really fascinating, is that so much of this is driven by individual people who are making decisions, oftentimes emotional decisions. Uh, we know Raban is hinted at in these three chapters, but we do know that Raban has been discussed. And we do know that Raban is somebody who is driven by something that is dark within his personality, to put it lightly. He's driven by this delight in pain and this delight in squeezing um, as he is instructed by the Baron, yet probably going a little overboard himself. And it's funny that that type of that type of transgression against these Fremen people is what has caused them to say, "Well, we're probably going to end up putting a stop to that now that Paul's here." And one of the things that this chapter gets into is Paul Ger- Gurney's observations of Paul of of the Fremen and how they behave, and then realizing that's because of Paul is a really cool moment in this but it is this this entire piece about fully aware of yourself a little less than an individual it's because the word you threw out which is fervor caught up in the fervor of whatever it is the group is suggesting that is the most important thing in that moment and uh we see this quite a bit in this book but it is a bit of a commentary on society at large yeah yeah mass devotion the wild, wild-eyed, frenzied devotion of his yep. 
jihadist warriors. Indeed. Yes. And we're going to talk about that right now, but we're going to get a little of a POV from Gurney Halleck here to start, right? Yeah. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Gurney and his men, as we open on chapter 43, they've located a spice patch. And Gurney feels pretty uneasy about this entire arrangement, despite feeling as if his location has some natural boundaries. Um, he knows that his men are way further south than Harkonnen patrols are willing to venture. So his concern seems to rest with being intercepted by or waylaid by Fremen. And uh, he says here that they've been cunning as of late, uh, yeah. more so than usual. He notes that their prowess is as good as any he's seen, and that he says, if we step where we shouldn't, the Fremen are, quote, hell on the warpath, right? Yeah. This is that fervor they're talking about. Things are escalating, as we're going to read in these next three chapters. And Gurney, we're getting Gurney's perspective of the Fremen right now. And this is so good because we learn a lot about Gurney the man throughout this entire book, but we get to see Gurney at work here. Yeah. And it's, it's great. It's great to, to watch him go through the various decision, decision-making processes. Yeah. Right. And to watch him, what's so interesting is that he is so naturally a leader that it's like within a short amount of time, he's already commanding this entire crew of mm -hmm. smugglers like Indeed. he's already found his place in that pretty fast um and is obviously making a living off of off of doing this um but yeah no there was another moment that i really loved where he he talks about the fremen where the fremen worried him their toughness and unpredictability many things about this business worried him but the rewards were great the fact that he couldn't send spotters high overhead worried him too the necessity of radio silence added to his uneasiness. Mm -hmm. And that really got me thinking about the pressures of a smuggler in this world, in this situation. Um, it's not unlike Star Wars. Like, I think Star sure. Wars took a lot from, when I think about what Star Wars took as an influence from Dune, I really noticed it in their concoction, their de depiction of smugglers at this, at this point in the book, of like what they're up to and how they're getting away with things. Um, I think Star Wars kind of borrows from that because the smugglers here, I think it's what's so interesting is they are caught between sides in a conflict um, because the Harkonnens are ob obviously against the smugglers and would probably kill them on sight because they're stealing their spice in their eyes. In, indeed. And, and then, and then to the, kill them and loot them. Right. And then to the Fremen, he, he's afraid that if they trespass on Fremen land, they will be given no mercy. Like the Fremen aren't of out course. to get them, but they also don't give a shit about killing them. It, it strikes me as quite, as, as quite uh, American history esque as it were very much like, Hey, this is what this is. This is the conflict that has occurred between some of these army folks and the native Americans. And these particular peaceful settlers are going to be caught in the middle of this because they don't, because because when you're in the American Indian position, you're like, we don't trust any of you fucks because of what's been going on, despite if you right. are peaceful and and, right. and and vice versa, the other way around too, right? Like, how do we know this is particular tribe? If we've been fucking with the Comanche, how do we know these people aren't going to kill us? Let's kill them first. You know, it's just violence always perpetuates violence. And right. in, in that position he finds himself in, Fremen and Harkonnen at each other's throats, I believe, is how he puts it. He now understands that he's in this hotbed. He's like, they're at each other's throats. 
he feels kind of confident because he's very far south. Arconan aren't quite looking to go that deep. And um, and he's concerned. You know, the, like yeah. you said, the Fremen worried him here. That devil's on the warpath quote is so good. And he's talking about the sophistication. And, and it's funny because I think we could argue that the word sophistication in warfare, that's probably a, a, a piece of a sentence that you wouldn't necessarily attribute to a native population in a science fiction setting or even in a historical one that has much shittier, for lack of better words, technology than the other force. You might say they're clever, they're cunning, they're they, but you sophistication in warfare, he says it very very specifically because it, it, it actually annoys him, I think he says, because mm-hmm. it, he's never seen anything like this before. And he's like, dude, I've been trained by the best people anywhere. Why are they yeah. so sophisticated? It's it's confusing to him. Right. Right. And, Trained uh, by the toughest in the galaxy. Indeed. And he talked about what, what uh, there's a couple things he says here. He says against Gurney scanned the horizon. He had to respect the possibility that there were Fremen here and he was trespassing. Fremen worried him their toughness and unpredictability. Many right. things about this business worried him, but the rewards were great. Like you already said, their unpredictability is an important part of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You would think in studying the Fremen, you could start start to predict how they're going to behave. If you fight somebody long enough or you observe somebody long enough, you might start to go, okay, this is predictable behavior. But since they're being unpredictable, I think that's also a, a very, very difficult situation to find yourself in. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing I find interesting about Gurney. By, by staying on Arrakis, he already made a choice to stay in high danger all the time. All the time. Absolutely. Uh, there's another great line here where Gurney's testing his muscles in his still suit, stretching. He has a ma- the filter off, and he has to make this decision. I'm going to lose moisture with the filter off my face, but I need these people to be able to hear my commands. So these little decisions that have to be made, I think, are what make this book interesting. That small detail alone is something that you don't have to think about in a lot of other settings, but in this one you do. And the way he says... He looks at, he watches the men spreading out, right? Yeah. And he says, good men, even the new ones, he hadn't had time to test. Good men didn't have to be told every time what to do. Not a shield glimmer showed on any of them. No cowards in this bunch. Carrying shields into the desert where a worm could sense the field and come to rob them of the spice they found. What I like about that is that he notes that nobody's wearing a shield. I think that's a good choice by Herbert. Because what Herbert, I think, is telling us here is that you would think that it, you would think that if you lined up a bunch of guys and said, if you wear a shield, the worm's going to come and you're all going to die, then you would never even look for a shield. But this right. almost kind of, you know, this, this reminds me of that moment in Aliens when Vasquez keeps her magazine and she's like, mm-hmm. no, no, yeah. fuck this. It's almost they're, what they're kind of suggesting is it, it almost seems like maybe that is the fact that he's noting that they don't means there's a possibility. Maybe some do still do that. And they turn it on for just a minute just to be safe. And then they turn it off. But he's saying not one of these guys, not one of these hardos is carrying a shield. And think about that enough for Herbert to mention it enough for Gurney to think it is yeah. tells you how much they rely on it. And it's almost like it's a, it, it reminds him of aliens. Like give me your magazines. Like you're so, they're so used to training and fighting with shields that they build, I'm sure, entire 
strategic ideas around the use of their own shields. And then, I mean, just look at how Paul and Gurney train and to take that away and say, okay, like the way you train is now irrelevant because now shields are gone. You're like, well, fuck, I don't like now we're back to square one in our training on on some level. And I like that. He's like, these guys are not cowards. They did not take their shields with them. Exactly. Exactly. But no, they they get ambushed Ooh. fucking hard in this next moment. Um, Twelve roaring paths of flame streaked upward to the hovering thopters and carrier wing. There came a blasting of metal from the factory crawler, and the rocks around Gurney were full of hooded fighting men. <laughs> great what way. a great explosive way to show that this happens in a flash. They are Indeed. overwhelmed. Um, and boy, like I loved this description of of a a fremen ambush i feel like this is what they tried to portray in the beginning of the dune movie sure ambush scene uh using rockets to take out their air cover and 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 their carry-all so they can't leave their fact they can't take their factory crawler away like this method like beautifully strategically executed plan of sophistication Exactly. Like it, they, they, you just watch this plan unfold as they just completely envelop and take over these guys and take their equipment. And one of my one of my favorite um, moments comes a little later, but uh, but when when he looks out across the battlefield, you know, as they were fighting, and he sees that you know the 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 factory crawler is covered in Fremen, they're all just standing atop it. Mm-hmm. Like it's already over. Like the whole thing is just over. Like <laughs> and it's yeah. been moments. What's wild about this is that <laughs> you are in a situation where Gurney Halleck is trained by some of the best people in the world, and in an instant, the ridge erupted, which is great, because Gurney never felt purely comfortable here. He didn't, and he fell for the bait. This p- spice patch we're going to come to learn was bait, and he fell for it, and that's yeah. that, that was ended up... But the whole time he's cagey feeling. He's like, I don't like this. I don't like that. In fact, one of the issues he has is he keeps his air support low because he doesn't want to get spotted by possible Harkonnen patrols. And as a result, these shoulder rockets, you put you put yourself right in range of these shoulder rockets. And it was a safe play by Gurney because he doesn't know the Fremen have these rockets. He's like, yeah, keep yeah. the air cover low to avoid Harkonnen patrols. That way they have to deal with ridge lines or elevations. They might have to get a little bit closer to see us instead of being way high up. And yeah. um and and he paid the price for that decision, but how would he know? Because by the horns of the great mother, rockets. They dare to use rockets. That's one of <laughs> Gurney's first thoughts. And uh and yeah, like you said, the the these they got they're caught. Gurney doesn't even get to draw his weapon. He's he's confronted by a hooded man whose eyes track his hand to his weapon. And then it just says, leave the knife in its sheath, Gurney. Leave the knife in its sheath, Gurney Halleck. And Gurney's like, wait a minute, who is this? (laughs) Who is it? I love this. It is our fucking boy. He thought at first he was looking at a ghost image of Duke Leto Atreides. Full recognition came slowly. Paul, he whispered, (laughs) then louder. Is it truly Paul? Don't you trust your own eyes, Paul asked. They hmm. said you were dead, Gurney rasped. He took a half step forward. And I and I want to read this whole this whole passage because it. this is such a great description that I was talking about a moment ago. Tell your men to submit, Paul commanded. He waved toward the lower reaches of the ridge. Gurney turned, reluctant to take his eyes off Paul. 
he saw only a few knots of struggle. Hooded, des- hooded desert men seemed to be everywhere around. The factory crawler lay silent with Fremen standing atop it. There were no aircraft overhead. Like, yeah. it's the, the, he has been talking to Paul for half of a moment. Like, mm-hmm. he's exchanged, like, a couple of words to him. And by the time he turns around from that, the entire thing is over. They've, yeah. they, the battle is won. <laughs> it's, it's just be like one of those images of like a bunch of GIs sitting on a German tank, you know, like that, like that's <laughs> yeah. how fast it was over. They're already Completely doing over. their selfies for their, their Twitter, their from Twitter. <laughs> They're already like, look at, we, we, we took this thing down. This guy's still negotiating. And he's got, you know, he's got his few men just kind of, uh, it sounds like in some sort of melee. Yeah. But he does tell them to stop the fighting. And, um, and I, and I like, I, I like this because Gurney for a moment, he's overwhelmed by seeing Paul. Like this is such great news to him. Although yeah. he does sense something different about Paul, which he goes into his own internal monologue here, but he's so happy, but Hey, fine friends, half our people are murdered. One of his guys shouts, <laughs> you did just shoot rockets at our ships and take us out. <laughs> so gurney's in a tough spot because he's like oh my god it's paul but also you just killed all, all my companions <laughs> so how do i like w- that puts gurney in a weird spot right if he right. wants to appear to be some kind of leader here this is a tough spot to be in yeah no i really i really like this and i like how he just confronts it he's just like it's a mistake you know don't mm-hmm. add to it you know half yeah. that are, yeah our people were murdered but let's not add more let's yeah. pause the the combat Sadly, at the end of the day, you're, you don't belong there yeah. and, and you're there to go after your, your, the, it is obviously, I don't know if I necessarily justify blowing them all up, but I'm not even going to get into all that. But the reality is, is you're not where you're supposed to be. These people yeah. are defending themselves. And I, I wonder, you know, I don't really know if the book ever addresses this. There's only what, six chapters left. I don't yeah. know if Paul knew it was Gurney right off the bat. I have a feeling he didn't. Yeah, he was approaching him in a combat stance. It describes him as like really coming close to him before before, you know, realizing. And and you know, Paul has the advantage of being hooded. So obviously Gurney doesn't recognize him immediately. And Gurney has a still suit on, so maybe he was difficult to recognize immediately until Paul got closer. Yeah. Because yeah, I wonder exactly. if Paul maybe would have taken a different approach, but but who's to say? It, it, we don't know because there is a fervor to them as of late. <laughs> exactly. They're a, they're a little bit wild lately. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, you know, they go through their gurney man and hugging gurney, each other, hugging each other and such. But um, I do like the moment where gurney says, so you're why the Fremen have grown so wise in battle tactics. I might've known they keep doing things. I could have planned myself I if I'd only known, right? <laughs> it's exactly. very good shit. But yeah, this this entire thing is awesome. And there is this moment where they be, because now now Gurney immediately defaults to I am the Duke's man and now you're the Duke, right? That's kind of what starts to come up here. Leto's dead. That technically makes Paul Duke Atreides. <laughs> yeah. He's, which means Duke Atreides, which is Paul out here in the middle of the desert with blue eyes for multiple years, he is the rightful Duke of Arrakis right now. He, that's who was assigned, right? According to Gurney, that's how Gurney feels about it. Yeah. And I like how he goes right into, I'm now loyal to Paul, 
less loyal to these guys, but he seems to have a reason because he hand signals to Paul because they're talking back and forth. The men are watching and they're smugglers all. Gurney said they stand where the prophet is. And then Paul says, little enough profit in our venture, Paul said. And he noted the subtle finger signal flashed to him by Gurney's right hand, the old hand code out of their past. There were men to fear and distrust in the smuggler crew. Paul pulled at his lip to indicate he understood, looked up at the men standing guard above them on the rocks. He saw Stilgar there, memory of the unsolved problem with Stilgar, which of course we're going to talk about in a minute. But that right there is good shit. They have this discussion openly in front of everybody, but that Atreides ducal training of using hand signals to communicate silently in the midst of potential enemies or people you don't entirely trust is fascinating because he tips, Gurney tips Paul off right away. Some of these guys are dangerous and I'm just not sure. Distrust and fear. Those are powerful words. And he sends them, he hand signals them to Paul. Yeah. No, that, I think that's like a really crucial moment where, you know, it's an illustration of their trust and how familiar they are. Yeah. Um, and it, it immediately comes back as soon as that happens. Yeah. Um, and but I but I also love that you know at the end of the day Gurney is noticing a shift in Paul like he is oh, noticing yeah. that Paul is a different person he looks different he has more of the the leathery skin and the you know, crack creases starting to actually form at his young eyes and and he's he seems more mature he seems hardened um and you know I I really like this moment here where where he, Paul kind of confronts um gurney on the fact uh of the deaths of the their friends the people they killed in the attack he says they were your friends gurney i understand to us though they were trespassers who might see things they shouldn't see you must understand that indeed and then gurney what i love what i love what he does here because paul hasn't had this happen in a while i understand it well enough gurney said now i'm curious to see what i shouldn't Paul looked up to see the old and well-remembered wolfish grin on Halleck's face. <laughs> and what I love about that is Paul has reached this status among the Fremen that makes him basically divine in a, in a sense. Like Indeed. They, they, they are borderline worshiping him. They're definitely following his every command. Um, everybody believes he is the Lisan al-Gabe. They believe he's the fulfillment of this prophecy and they are devoted to him. Um, and nobody, I think, pushes back on Paul. And I love that Gurney is still so familiar and so comfortable with Paul that he kind of fucks with him a little bit. Of course. <laughs> like, he's not going to, he's like, yeah, I don't care he's, that you're the messiah to these and fucking it, people. And it's probing, too. It's, mm. it's, he's probing because he needs to know how much have you changed, right? There's that moment before, I, I think it's before, where Gurney, it, it's this moment where all of the Tetris pieces in Gurney's mind just land in a perfect pattern. And he goes, oh my God, I'm sort of reborn here, right? Gurney was really ready to go kill. So Gurney, just for, for, for memory's sake and for perspective, Gurney, his mindset is, I'm going to kill Raban and probably die in the process. My life is forfeit. I, I believe that's how he feels. I believe he's, he's going after Raban, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, what's interesting is he has the same kind of fervor as as uh the fremen do but yeah. it's on a personal vendetta level of you know raban is the beast that destroyed my fucking everything yep. i'm absolutely going to right. get revenge absolutely and and he now that he knows that paul's alive he's like holy shit 
right? He didn't know who, who, I mean, my assumption was he probably thought most of them, them were dead. Maybe not Jessica as he still right. thinks she's the traitor, but he has that moment where he says the pattern of the Fremen war in Iraq has began to take shape a new, take a new shape in Gurney's mind. My Duke, he thinks a place that had been dead within him began to come alive. Only part of his awareness focused on Paul's ordering the smuggler crew disarmed until they could be questioned. But that moment, he's going, wait a minute. This is this is what Gurney's built for. This is what he wants to be. He wants to serve his duke. And now, you know, he, he admits he stayed because of Raban. That's that's it. And he, he, all he thought of, I think he says, is revenge. That's all that was in his mind. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> 100%. And, uh, well, they're interrupted by the arrival of something. Yeah. No, this is fucking great. Shai Halud. A maker comes, Matthew. A maker shows. The and best part of this is how the Fremen don't even pick up the pace. Yeah. They're just like, cool, worm. It's it's if you said it's drizzling out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you look and you go, yep, it is. I don't even need a jacket. It's fine. Yeah. And your friends who are made of, I don't know. <laughs> What are your friends made of? Play-Doh or, or fucking ice cream? <laughs> or like, but wait, you, you got silly melty friends. They're, they're wicked witch of the West friends. They're like, but no, I can't. Not the rain. I can't out I'm into the rain. <laughs> they're like, what is this rain, dummy? <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking cool. But, but yeah, I, I like that they, there isn't anything like that. Right. Yeah. No, they are, they are so utterly calm. They are so totally comfortable with sizing up this worm, approaching it, getting you know getting up on its side and just taking control of the worm yeah and like i love the way it's described as how you know it just within a moment he sees all of this action this unified action of them you know the daring leap of the first hookman yep. the turning of the creature the way an entire band of men went up the scaly glistening curve of the worm's side <laughs> and this is something what i what i love about it is it reveals something well, it reveals something most importantly to to Gurney. Like of course, he now learns. He does, yeah, he's like, wait, what? You guys ride these things? You guys ride the most feared <laughs> thing on this entire planet, the thing that rules the desert, and and we cannot we we assume is like practically immortal. Like, you're, what are we going to do about them? Nothing. Um, and you just fucking ride them for fun. You surf Indeed. them with your pals, hanging out, drinking Mountain Dew, surfing <laughs> worms. How the fuck? It's crazy. That's what they do. In this moment, I, uh, this is the, I call this the God Emperor type of thing to say. Paul, Paul has this God Emperor line here where he says, uh, what's the, what's the line here? He says, you heard my father speak of desert power. There it is. The surface of the planet is ours. No storm, no creature, no condition can stop us. Right? He's feeling very <laughs> confident. Paul's feeling, he's really feeling like he's ready to take on the world, man. Oh uh, yeah. No, I love that. Like Paul is Paul feels different I think even to to us at this point. Um Indeed. like we you know it, it has been a slow transformation to one sense but we've jumped forward in, enough to where it almost feels you know there are moments of Paul having an awareness. So there's a moment early on <clears throat> where he saw it as a good omen. A sign that he was on the yeah. course of the future where all was well. The good with, omen of finding Gurney. Exactly. With yes. Gurney at my side. Um, so he believed when he first saw Gurney um, that, hey, this will help me stay on a path that does not lead to this 
horrific crusade that gets out of control and and wipes out millions mm. like that doesn't need to happen and i think gurney can help me you know avoid that so i think there is this there is this hesitation in paul and he wants to still avoid that outcome he's consciously thinking and and trying to f- identify ways to avoid it um but also the way he behaves he is leaning into it more than ever indeed like, He's fully leaning into the role and embodying it and speaking with the power of being like, yes, I am the Lisan Al Gabe and demanding the respect of that. Um, you know, he's fully taken on the role, even though he still doesn't quite believe in its purpose. Right. Because part of because part of part of the issue here is he still has this Stilgar situation to contend with, which we're going to talk about soon, which is I he, he wants to make sure that the Fremen he wants he doesn't want to lose Stilgar, he needs Stilgar. And and he understands that that's a distinct possibility from a hierarchical standpoint as far as the Fremen are concerned. And the expectation it is the way is said multiple times regarding challenging and, and things like that. But he has to he has to he's gonna to start to his sell job of why the ways sometimes change. And he yeah. is. He's trying to figure out a new way to move the Fremen forward versus just always relying on the old ways. One of the things you and I talked about many chapters ago was this idea that the Fremen do things a certain way because they figure out how to survive and that's important. But how do they figure out how to thrive? That's where they have to push to the next plateau. They have to figure out more than just survival. Maybe we have to re-examine what we're doing. And I think that's coming by way of Paul, right? It's it's easy for a guy like you know when you are the Lisan Algayib or when you are the Kwisatz Haderach uh, or or or, or uh, Muad'Dib when you are this you are in a position to where you see things a little bit different than the average Fremen who just tries to eke out an existence in the sands of Arrakis which is not easy it's a very difficult life to embrace so when things work when you figure out what works as a Fremen that thing becomes tradition. That thing becomes religion. This is yeah. what we do. This is how we do it. Those early chapters of, of, uh, kinds knowing this guy knows how to put on a still. So like that's religion to them. Like they're so good at knowing and just seeing you've done this before. I can tell just by looking at your suit, you know how to do this. Just little things that have become automatic to these Fremen folk. And they yeah. cling to those traditions. Now, and this is part of Gurney's observation, now things are different. There's sophistication. Things are different. You have a you have a you have a ducal trained Paul who's also a Benny Gesserit trained, who's also a Fremen now, who's also like so they're going beyond their own tradition, and all of that culminates in this thing with Stilgar. It's almost like the personification of this like this is, it, it is the way, it is the way, they always say to Paul. He's yeah. like, yeah, but, so was this, but we didn't do that. So now I'm going to try to logic you guys into understanding why the ways have to change a little bit. And that is excellent. Yeah. That is yeah. excellent. And just the idea, really, of Paul being the new catalyst that changes Fremen culture, that like shifts, that like that's a that's an actual like example of a culture shifting from yep. one position to another of being yep. like, okay, we accept this new thing. And it is um, delicate though. Right. Because, right. Because Paul does have an idea. Paul, Paul still loves his, his, his murdered father, Leto. He still, he has a strange relationship with his mother as she's gone to Reverend mother status. 
he's got this strange relationship with Arrakis, and he definitely has a strange relationship with the remnants, if any, of House Atreides. He wants justice as well, right, yeah. for what happened to House Atreides, and 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 he talks about it right here. And this, I I love this next grouping of dialogue because he says to you, he he said he says to Gurney, "What's going on? What's what? What are we hearing about with Raban, et cetera, et cetera? What, what's going on in the villages? What's going on in the sinks, Gurney? You're you're closer to civilization than we are. Can you give us some intel?" And he says, well, and Gurney says, look, they fortified um, to the point where they're completely defended. You can't, you're not going to be able to attack them, right? You, you'll wear yourself out, futility. You'll crash against their rocks until there's nothing left. I'm paraphrasing and, and, and editorializing here. But Paul says, in a word, they're immobilized. And, and that is that cunning, right? Raban feels like, We've shored up our defenses. Let them come. Right. We've defended ourselves. Baha. <laughs> We're and big Paul's strong like, boys. Cool. You guys don't go anywhere. The planet is ours. You've yeah. walled yourself in, right? That's why it, it that's why if that's why the attacker has an advantage so often because they're they have the initiative. And I think he says it here. He says in like they're immobilized. That's something I learned from you, Paul Sestigurney. And then he says they've lost the initiative which means they've lost the war. So Paul realizes that Raban's tactical decision, which is we're going to shore up our defenses, has now caused him to become completely immobile, right? If you play fucking command and conquer, and you you just wall your base off, you're going to run out of ore, you're going to lose if somebody controls the fucking map. Play StarCraft 2. If you don't control the map, you lose. That's it. Oh, yeah. You lose. If you don't have map control, you lose the game. And and you, or sieging a castle. Eventually they're gonna get you. You're gonna run out of food. You 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 can't you're not going anywhere. And yeah, I know there's I know there's historical examples of people sieging castles and failing, right? But <laughs> in a word, they're immobile. And Paul likes that. We have mobility. We have initiative more than mobility. And uh yeah, and Gurney smiles like you're you're right, dude. And we know this because Raban, much like Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, who I miss, I miss him. <laughs> he a knew Raban was going to fuck up, right? This is the genius of, Har- of, of Vladimir Harkonnen. He knows Raban's going to fuck up because he can't help himself. And now <laughs> he's that he's greedy. mismanaged the spice, the guild's pissed off, which is the last thing you want. And this is where, <laughs> this is where, Vladimir Harkona was hoping to set fate up for the takeover, right? And now we're seeing the effects of that. Raban is undersupplied. He wants more troops. He's not getting them. So now yeah. he's going, I I need to do what I... And maybe Raban's not making the wrong choice based on his logistical situation, but now he's stuck. He's stuck in a tough spot and he can't go anywhere for fear of attack. And that's right. shitty because you, you're losing the initiative. Yeah. Yeah, his position is a bad and crumbling one. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but no, I think another interesting thing that comes up here is, you know, once, you know, uh I uh they they start to walk together. Yeah. Um, there's a moment where he asks Paul actually asks about the men among his crew. <laughs> so some of the new recruits. Um, and you know, Gurney replies, I think, my lord, that they report to no Harkonnen. I suspect they're men of the Imperial service. 
They have a hint of Seleucus Secundus <laughs> about them. I love that. They kind of have a Seleucus Secundus walk. <laughs> they know, give they, a, yeah. As far as vibe check goes, it's feeling a little Seleucus Secundus. It's got a little, you guys feel a little Seleucus Secundus. And now that the movie is out, that means they kind of, every once in a while, they go, when they walk around, they do that weird chant. And you're like, oh, that's definitely a fucking, that's definitely Sardaukar. Take him out if you can. If They're busy can. crucifying people. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. But no, what I what I think is cool there is that um, you know, again, this is reinforcing that that trust, that bond that they already have um of looking out for one another and and you know, that that at the end of the day Gurney's true loyalty lies with Paul and he's of going course. to to stay with Paul and to, you know, uh protect him as best as he can. Mm-hmm. Um where yeah. do we go from here? Well, the the hustle and bustle around the worm or the maker wasn't it didn't have a hecticness to it. However, right. when they say there's wind coming, I believe Cheney says it. Oh boy, people start moving now, right? Gurney saw a quickening of motion among the Fremen now, a rushing about in sense of hurry. A thing the worm had not ignited was brought about by fear of the wind. The factory crawler lumbered up onto the dry beach below them and a way was open for it among the rocks and the rocks closed behind it so neatly that the passage escaped eyes. That's like a James Bond supervillain <laughs> fortress, dude. Fucking <laughs> cool. Yep. And uh, it's like pulled up the bookcase moves. <laughs> but yeah, because this is the desert wind. Uh, and this is where... There's a lot of moments here, too, where Gurney realizes Cheney's Paul's woman, mother of his child, the Duke Leto, the, the, the Atreides line lives on, I believe Paul says. Right. And then there's this moment of Gurney keeps having these reflections of Paul saying the word like us a lot. Us, right. us. He keeps saying us. I mean, when whenever Paul refers to us, he refers to himself as the Fremen. And that's that's something Gurney really notices, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it sticks out to him bad. Yep. Because he's just really sinking into that, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, of like sinking into the role and embodying the role, even as much as he's telling himself that he doesn't believe mm. in its cause completely, that he's going to, that he's got the reins on it, that he's, that he can control it. I think, I think there's a little bit of, in my opinion, at least what I see in Paul here, um, a slight bit of, megalomania creeping in just like on sure. the edge on the edges of his thinking it's like he's sure. keeping it at bay but i think it there is an element of that behind there where it's it's driving his own fervor indeed i agree with that and as this moves on gurney realizes that paul is muadib he's heard that term before he calls him the willow the sand and uh and paul says it's my fremen name quite quite plainly to gurney and Gurney turned away, feeling an oppressive sense of foreboding. Half his own crew dead on the sand, the others captive. He did not care about the new recruits, the suspicious ones, but among the others were good men, friends, people for whom he felt responsible. We'll decide what to do with them after the storm, he remembers Paul saying. That's what Paul had said, Muadib had said, and Gurney recalled the stories told of Muadib, the Lisan al-Gaib, how he had taken the skin of a Harkonnen officer to make his drum heads. Now he was surrounded by death commanders. Fedekin, I think they say Fedekin in the in the audio uh, novel. I was saying Fedekin because I think yeah, it sounds cool. Yeah, 
who leaped into battle with their death chance on their lips. Him. So good. Yeah. Paul Gurney having these revelations. Wow. This guy has, is, is part of this thing, right? It's these beat. This is part of this thing. This is, this is wild. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also the, the fact that there are already, and Paul notes this later on as well, um, but already unrealistic, mythic legends being spread about him. Indeed. Like that, that's already, you know, a part of their culture. These stories about Paul, like he's Jesse James or some shit. Like there's these legends about him. Indeed. Um, and I think that's, that's a really cool, interesting way of showing how storytelling, you know, affects people's, you know, minds. <laughs> mm-hmm, indeed. Yep. We have a, a, a nice moment where Gurney and Silgar actually meet. Right. And uh, Gurney kind of has this. I like the way Gurney sort of observes Stilgar because Stilgar's fucking awesome and Gurney's awesome. And they're two very differently awesome people. Yeah. And I like how Gurney notes an air of challenge about the man. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, how Stilgar has, has that sense of bravado about him, silent, the silent type, not the, not the in your face type. But, um, here was someone called Gurney Halleck who'd known Paul even in the times before Arrakis, a man who shared a camaraderie that Stilgar could never invade. That's one thing Gurney considers, that I wonder if there's a hint of jealousy in this Stilgar fellow, because me and this guy go way back to when he was just a pup. Just a wee pup. But Gurney's a gentleman. He says, Stilgar, the Fremen, is a name of renown. Any killer of Harkonnen, I'd feel honored to count among my friends. So, right, he's trying to buddy up with Stilgar. I love this. I love a buddy cop movie with Stilgar and Gurney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think Gurney's still, I mean, not Gurney, uh, Stilgar is still a little more reserved about Indeed. it. Like he's definitely kind of keeping him at an arm's distance. Because Stilgar has something on his mind, doesn't he? Yes. Is he going to get called out? Is he going to get killed? Yeah. Despite no, he- it being the way, it's something that has to be playing on his mind in this moment. Also, I mean, outsiders, perhaps there is a little bit of jealousy there. Maybe, not sure. Well, and I mean, if there's anybody that could even possibly replace Stilgar, it mm. would be Gurney sure. as like right-hand man of, of this situation. And I think that's a little bit of it, kind of like that air of challenge that, you know, he feels like, oh, are you challenging my position among, among us? Which is interesting because there is no challenge in Gurney's mind. Gurney is the right-hand man as far as he's concerned. He's protecting his duke. It's, he's right back on the clock, Gurney. He's right back on the <laughs> clock. He's torn himself out of the oblivion of revenge, and he is now back on the clock. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Or so he thinks. <laughs> because they realize that there are, in fact, Sardukar among the men. Right. A, a, little, a little scrum breaks out. Beneath them on the floor of the cave swirled a melee of struggling figures. Paul stood an instant assessing the scene, separating the Fremen robes and burkas from the costumes of those they opposed. And uh, that's when they find the, I believe it is a, uh, a signature on the weapon or the close, the, I think he says the habit of close fighting was a trademark of the Imperial Sardaukar. Right. They were fighting in little three-man triangle units. Mm. Yeah. It's yep. interesting. He shows, uh, Gurney ends up showing him the, the, the weapon. I believe it's a knife that, the hairline yellow coil of imperial color on it, right? The gold lion yeah. crests, multifaceted eyes at the pommel. Sarukov is certain. Now, uh, 
One so. of the things we've we've done the last couple of times we've done this show, which we didn't do for the other nine, ten episodes, is that we're doing this live. We're actually recording this live with some listeners in a chat right now. And um, one of our listeners, Diabetic Dave, says the following. It was always clear that Paul and Jessica manipulate the Fremen culture to attain their own goals. They change the things they need. They change things they need to change and reinforce the things they need to reinforce. He does the former by arguing the changes are needed for their pre-existing goals. He does the latter by fermenting fervor based on their religious teachings. Either way, it's all in Paul and Jessica's self-interest. He uses their own traditions to control them, either through change or reinforcement. What do you think about that, Matt? I think that is very true. Um, and having a background in working in behavioral science, uh, reinforcement is a huge, if not the single most primary aspect of reinforcing a, you know, a reinforcement of a behavior through positive reinforcement, especially, um, makes the most everlasting changes in behavior. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> like that's actually yep. measurable. Um, I think it's a very well thought out statement and it's yeah. and i think there's a lot of truth in it probably mostly true i do think that that doesn't necessarily mean that paul doesn't count himself among the fremen in other words i don't think he's a full-on imposter i think right. he believe like he's not he's not somebody who's like he's not being completely machiavellian about it but he is kind of being machiavellian about it right right yeah I he's not he, i don't think he thinks he's better than them is how correct I Correct. Uh, well, he does. I think I, I think he believes he he because even for Gurney to notice the words like us, the way Paul refers to him as part of that culture now, mm. the way Paul refers to himself as part of that culture now, which Gurney picks up on, which I think is a good litmus test because Gurney has always known Paul a certain way. Now he's seeing Paul a different way, and he's yeah. not looking at Paul as somebody who's infiltrated the Fremen and now controls them for his own ends. It's it's a the I think uh, self interest is an interesting self without getting too philosophical. I think everyone acts in their own self interest for sure. Mm. Yeah, even the Fremen. But I think um, I definitely think there is. I definitely think you change things that stand in your way and and, and reinforce things that that support you, <laughs> especially if you have a bigger mind, a bigger prize in mind for sure. Right. Right, a long-term yeah. goal. Which a long-term goal. Always the kind of goal of the Bene Gesserit. Long-ass sure. term goals. Sure, but but he ha but it's interesting to see him over time changing, right? How how much he... You, you wonder if he would have the same feelings he had for... Remember when he killed Jameis and that, that weight on him, that moment where they had the funeral and in that, that chapter, it, it weighed on his conscience quite heavily. And you right. wonder if the same is true X amount of time later, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I love, I love how Paul basically interrupts the fight. Uh, yes. He, he just comes out and screams, hold, the Duke Paul Atreides commands you to hold. And the fighting mm -hmm. wavered and hesitated. And he calls out the Sardaukar here, yeah. calls them out and tells, tells them that, you know, he knows who they are. Um, and I do, I, dude, one of my favorite moments scene. too is when he turns to uh, Gurney and just says, how many of these Sardaukar were there, Gurney? Paul asked, and he goes, 10. Like he knows yeah. immediately, right? <laughs> he was like, I know exactly which one of those guys in my crew would have been fucking Sardaukar. Absolutely. Um, it's great instinct. A, they, a, they great, a great tip of the cap to Gurney. Yeah, yeah. It's so good. It's just, yeah. ugh. Yeah, it is. It's, I like it because it's, it, 
I like how the Sardaukar deny it at first. Who says we're Sardaukar, right? Yeah. That's <laughs> clever. Because... No, oh! <laughs> anyone who's a Sardaukar step forward, they step back. The one poor <laughs> bastard didn't get the memo. <laughs> well, I, I like this because in an instant, we get a sense of what's happening here politically. Now, if we, we shift off of Fremen culture into Imperium culture, right? By whose order do you threaten a ruling duke? That That's not a Fremen statement. That's an Atreides ducal statement, right? True. <laughs> Hold, Very I true. say. <laughs> and uh, this says you're Sardaukar. Then who says you're a ruling duke? And that's when Paul says, these men say I'm a ruling duke. Your own emperor bestowed Arrakis on House Atreides. I am House Atreides. And then this line, the Sardaukar stood silent fidgeting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <I'm> just nervous <laughs> they start thinking like how did the law work again because think about this this the the, the sardukar are the shock troops or i guess the elite troops of the imperium right right and their presence on their their presence here is wrong it's illegal it is against what the land shroud would consider legal we right. know that Shaddam is not acting in accordance to the Landshrod's rules or laws. He is and he's these committing men were, warfare on a house. He's committing warfare on his house for his own end. And this is not good. So the Sardaukar don't know that. The Sardaukar know, here's an order, go execute the order. And when faced with Paul, who uses, not even using the voice here yet, he's using... <laughs> political sort of uh he's using political speech to say i am the i'm the duke blah 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 what are you doing they kind of they're pausing they're like wait a minute maybe this isn't as clear cut as we thought it was and i like that i like that i like that fidgeting moment silently fidgeting fuck maybe he has a point <laughs> like, know, oh, what, shit. what are we doing again what guys? are we doing here and i like that paul just doesn't summarily execute them all at this point right right <laughs> doesn't say he won't do that but <laughs> Yeah. Um, but no, I, I love the moment where he also turns to his lieutenant and asks how many casualties <laughs> for four wounded, two dead Muad'Dib. And he approaches, approaches them and uh, starts to talk to them about uh, the, the amount of men that they had killed their kill death ratio between yeah. their, <laughs> between their teams, <laughs> uh, <laughs> their call of duty scores. <laughs> Your Katie sucks fucking loser noob. Oh, fuck. But yeah, that's basically what he says is he calls them out and makes them, you know, points out that like, you know, we did pretty good against the Imperial Sardaukar, wouldn't you say? Mm, um, it's a great moment of, you know, we held our own against you. You yeah. know, you've got this Sardaukar pride, but maybe it's not quite, you know, serving you. <laughs> he he forces the, the speaking Sardaukar to tell him his name using the voice. Right. I asked your name. However, it sounds. <laughs> and he says, Captain Aram Sham, Imperial Sardukar. <laughs> now I'm going to listen since you're Benny Jesuiting my face. <laughs> and um, I like that the man's jaw drops and he realizes this is not, you know, this is not a cavern of barbarians. I think is he I doesn't I think that's a sentiment he has up here somewhere. Right. Right. Dismissed this cavern as a barbarian he uh, Warren melted away. So his his loftiness, his, his his thinking he was better than these Fremen soldiers, that all goes away once you're like, oh shit, you can do that to me. <laughs> right. Excellent moment when one of the Sardaukar like, enough is enough, I'm still following Shaddam's orders, and he tries to kill Paul. And 
Aram Sham, the captain, just wastes his ass. He stabs him on the way in. Just boom. (laughs) Right in the chest. Sarukar style, you know. And he says, I decide who serves his majesty. Right? What, well, how, how to best serve his majesty. So, right. Aram Sham still seems to be acting in accordance to the best wishes of his majesty, but he's kind of stuck in a hard point here, and he has to right. submit. He has to obey. Right. Because, for one, he still doesn't want... He, I think he understands that he doesn't, or and the emperor doesn't want their presence known. Right. Um, so yeah, like, that's he's, a part of, he's, he's, he's breaking the law. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yep. Anyway, he takes them prisoner and, um, yeah, they, they, <laughs> they, uh, they're discussing the fate of these men. Right. Cause, cause right. Paul basically says, look, you're my prisoners. You submitted to me. I don't care if you live or die. I, that's very callous from Paul because yeah. Aram Sham says, let it be known I killed a friend for you today, right? Which Paul's never going to ever fall for that manipulation. You can't really trust these Sardukar. No, you and, can't. But he does be. say, I don't care if you live or die. It's very, it's interesting to tell Aram Shem that after he kills one of his own men who tried to kill Paul, which of course would have failed anyway, because Paul is Paul. Paul's going to get his ass. Paul's going to slip that and slice you up, man. <laughs> He's going to kick you in the heart. Apparently, <laughs> kick through He's your like, sternum and shatter. Paul your heart. is a model Mortal Kombat character because he can just kick you in the heart. <laughs> <laughs> Drives <laughs> like, it through your back. Okay, you you basically you you know you you know when you take play doh and you go and make it all come out. That's he play dohs your heart through your vertebrae, just bang with a little sidekick. <laughs> <laughs> Brutal fatality. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty wild. But it's cool when you learn about how they carry coils of sugar wire in their hair. They, oh, they assemble yeah. these things to make weapons very crafty. Very, very crafty. They have false and, toenails that can be uh, combined with what? others. Like, what the fuck? Guys are nuts. Sardaukar can't be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a there's discussion. Kill them at once. Kill these prisoners. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what Gurney... Both Gurney and the other, you know, Frim and his lieutenant is just like, we got to waste these guys. They could, they, what, like, we should destroy all evidence of them entirely. When the Emperor learns that he'll, uh, you've shamed Imperial Sardaukar. Right. When the, when the Emperor learns that he'll not rest until he has you over a slow fire. Um, yeah, so yeah, they understand the danger of the Sardaukar being involved at all. And what that means, what is interesting is like what that means politically for them. A hundred percent. Yeah, it's a, it's a really bad spot. Shaddam's in a really bad spot right now, which gets us to this discussion of some of the guild agents and such, and then the discussion of the spice, because Paul says, "Listen, I, I believe, I believe Gurney says Rax is crawling with guild agents. They're buying spice as though it were the most precious thing in the universe. Why else do you think we ventured this far?" And Paul says, "It is the most precious thing in the universe to them." He makes it very clear. Yeah, Do you know who doesn't exactly. give a fuck about the spice that much? The Fremen, really. Not really. Not yeah. really. They they don't require it. The Imperium yeah. literally requires it. Arrakis is one of the most important planets in the Imperium because without it, there is no space travel as they know it. Exactly. Yeah. And he's like, we control it, Gurney. And Gurney protests this quite loudly. He's like, the Harkonnens control it. You're in the fucking desert. And he goes... <laughs> En contraire, the en people contraire. who can destroy a thing, they control it, Paul said. 
So that is a great line. Yeah, that's absolutely it. People who can destroy something are the ones who control it. That is excellent. (laughs) That's kind of why the the only votes that matter at the UN are the ones with nukes. (laughs) Come to the circus every November. Um, now in the midst of all this chaos and talking, I think, I think Paul actually says, Gurney, I'll hear no more of this spice talk for now. And because by the way, I got to deal with this Stilgar situation. (laughs) Yeah. Stilgar's like, are we, are you going to kill me? Are we fighting to the death? What are we doing, Paul? Because I need to know. But um, this is good shit. Yeah. Right. Let's talk about this. Dude, Paul took the Sardaukar knife in his left hand, presented it to Stilgar. You live for the good of the tribe, Paul said. Could you draw my life's blood with that knife? For the good of the tribe, Stilgar growled. Then (laughs) use that knife, Paul said. Are you calling me out? Stilgar demanded. If I do, Paul said, I shall stand there without weapon and let you slay me. I think that's such an interesting way of showing how they they have this insane tension between them right now. But Indeed. at the same time, neither of them wants to clash like at Indeed. all. Like the, neither yeah. of them wants to go through with this whatsoever. And it makes that like, you know, it's like a, a, a historical hinge point for this culture of like, both these idea, both these people are pushing back against each other, um, and there's going to be some sort of resolve, whether that's one overtaking the other or if it's some sort of compromise. And yeah. that's like the, this new changing of the way. Always compromise. This is like you know when you have a friend group and like you're a pretty tough kid growing up, and your buddy's pretty tough, and you got these other friends who maybe aren't as tough, and you're like, we're never going to fight because we like we kind of know like we're both pretty tough. So like you kind of, you have this peace, you know, the two tough guys don't fight each other. They kind of bro up. That's, that's <laughs> essentially what Paul's doing is like, can we bro up right now? Cause I don't want to fight you. Cause, and you don't want to fight me except this situation is much different because the reality is, is that Paul will kill Stilgar. Right. And Stilgar knows that. He has Stilgar is like, if we kick. fight, I'm going to die. <laughs> and Stilgar knows this. Yeah. He's like, I know you have the hard kick mastered and I can stop it. <laughs> side checks him ah no still guy was tough for a while but um yeah i like this i I like when he when he says that of course cheney objects that's his that's her husband and um paul says you are still a fighting man when the sardaukar began fighting here you were not in the front of battle your first thought was to protect cheney she's my niece if there'd been any doubt of you of fitikeen handling those scum why was your first thought of Cheney? Paul demands. It wasn't. Oh, I w- it was of you, Stilgar admitted. Do you think you could lift your hand against me, Paul? Asked. Stilgar says, it's the way. <laughs> and then Paul challenges him here with logic. He says, right. it's the way to kill off-world strangers found in the desert and take their water as a gift from Shai Halud. However, you permitted two to live, my mother and myself. My mother and myself. And Stilgar was like, oh, ways change. <laughs> Yeah, I did oh, do I mean, that. Could, true. I mean, change, <laughs> yeah, because we could change it up. And I like that. And um, and this is, I like how he handles this. I think this is really good. Yeah. No, this is this is really cool. It's Where, like, I don't want to cut off my right hand, dude. I, I need you. I right. I need you by my side. 
Do you think I wish to deprive myself or the tribe of your wisdom and strength? Indeed. And, and that's essentially what it boils down to is he understands. And I think he also understands that the cohesion of yes. his forces of, of the Fremen need that lifelong understanding of the Fremen culture that Stilgar has. Yep. Um, it's, you know, for, for, for Paul, he understands it through knowledge and exposure and, and learning about it. But for Stilgar, it's in his blood. Like he's Indeed. from the day he's born, he's been saturated in this culture and understands it in a way that I think even Paul never quite will. Right. But I think Paul is smart enough to realize that and knows like, I need you because of that. Yep. And this immediately when Stilgar acquiesces to these demands and Paul, Paul now realizes, okay, now, now I have to sell this to the Fremen populace. Now this idea has to be sold. He immediately tells Cheney, go to my mother, right? She's like, but you told me to stay in the South. He's like, I was wrong. The Harkonnens are not, are not there. Their war is not there. It, it, it Paul's starting to feel this excitement, right? Mm-hmm. Now yeah. I got Paul. I have, uh, Paul's like, now I have Stilgar. Stilgar's on my side. I think we can convic- convince the Fremen. We know that Raban is walled off because that's the information. He, remember, he's getting all this information right now in a very yeah. short time. It went from people fighting, trying to like, 10 minutes ago, they shot ships with rockets. I know we've been talking about this chapter for an hour, but yeah. 10 minutes ago, they shot rockets. And now Paul's like, what's going on with Raban? Oh my God, good to see you, Stilgar. Are we going to kill each other? No, great, awesome. Send word to mom. Yeah. It's happening very quickly. Very fast. It really is. Yeah, man. And, and I love the, you know, that, that, that knowledge, um, that learning of Raban's situation in particular is the is now the the like the fuse has been lit like this yeah, is the that's thing it. that's like okay here we go this is that now the time to strike mm-hmm. um and and i love how it's revealed and I, how we see that it's imperative for paul to resolve this tension between him and stilgar that to, in order to have the cohesion and the momentum he needs to go into this battle um and really overtake the powers that be of arrakis um, he's going to need this cohesion, this, you know, loyalty then, and unquestioned, you know, devotion, like, right. And which he's fond can't. of Stilgar, right? Let's be real. Right. He doesn't want to, and, and, you know, to die back Dave's point earlier. Yeah. Maybe he's trying to be, maybe there's some self-interest here and manipulation, a little bit of manipulations, but at the end <laughs> of the day, he's fond of Stilgar. He's fond of these people. He doesn't want Stilgar to die. He needs Stilgar. But even if he didn't, I don't think he'd want to just murder the guy. He's fond of Stilgar, right? Yeah, and he's trying yeah. to justify something in his head that's like, I don't want to kill this guy, and let me, let me, let me sell this to these folks. Let me sell this this idea. And when you've done what you've done for the Fremen, what Paul has done, the sophistication of their warfare, you you've they now have a reverend mother. Like yeah. all of this shit, because of the <laughs> missionario protectiva. Thank you very much, Benny Jesuit, who came before us. But um, now you now you have a lot of influence on these folks. It's time. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and, and he did, you know, he's fond of Stilgar and he does want cohesion. He doesn't want to chop off his right arm any more than he wants to murder somebody he likes. Right. Exactly. You know? And in a guy know, who doesn't stand a chance, it's goofy. He doesn't want to do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Why, why bother? It's a waste on every front. Yeah, um, indeed. But another thing, an important thing happens uh, right <laughs> yes. after this. Yes. The interchange between Paul and the older Fremen had passed as though in a cloud around Gurney since Paul's reference to his mother. 
your mother, Gurney said. So this is the moment that Gurney realizes for sure Jessica is alive and she is with Paul. They are, they are, she is with the Fremen with them. Oh, that she witch alive, Gurney thought. The one I swore (laughs) vengeance against alive. And it's obvious Duke Paul doesn't know what manner of creature gave him birth. The evil one betrayed his own father to the Harkonnens. So he is, his vengeance boner is throbbing and strong. Like, absolutely. Because now now he knows. Yeah. Now he knows. Yeah. Pretty wild. (laughs) Good shit. Chapter down. Yeah, chapter number, real quick, some of the stuff that Paul thinks is how, uh, he says, I didn't even draw my knife today. It'll be said that I slew 20 starter car by my own hand. He's talking about the, how the legend goes, right? Exactly. Good yeah, I love that. <laughs> but yes, chapter 43, down. All right, Matthew, I guess that brings us to chapter 44, right? The, a little less of, a little less lengthy than the chapter before it, but still lengthy enough. And uh, we're going to go get a bit of a Jessica POV. Yeah. No, which I love, is always exciting. Love peeking in on Jessica. Yeah. Yeah, she's great. So, chapter 44, I guess it's time for me to read the open? Yes, sir. Okay, let's do it. How often is it that the angry man rages, denial of what his inner self is telling him? From Collected Sayings of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Hmm, how often is it the angry man rages denial of what his inner self is telling him? <laughs> we deny ourselves. Indeed. I'm <clears throat> angry. So let's break this down. How often is the angry man? So angry man is raging. So an angry man is denying what his inner self is telling him. <laughs> and I think, I think emphasis on the word angry. Indeed. Um, as that is like almost like being portrayed as like a fatal flaw. Yes, um, of like you being in better control of oneself is 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 what you would want to strive for, or clouding um, is, your judgment, your anger clouding your judgment, right? Exactly, exactly. The your inner self is trying to tell you something. However, your angry ass is raging that in denying such such things, right? Perhaps, exactly. perhaps certain truths that you refuse to accept are part of your rage. It's difficult to say. Difficult to say. Well, <clears throat> good. We have an assembled crowd, and uh, we are opening on Jessica, and she's considering all that's happening, more or less. That's how this opens. All that's happening before her. She recalls Paul forbidding. She recalls Paul forbidding the use of the stash doctors, suggesting that they mustn't come to rely on off-world off-world fuel. That's smart, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, this is where that the, they will be saved for the day of maximum effort line comes up. And she's also disturbed by Gurney's presence, but not in the way you would think, right? Yeah. Because she's disturbed as she is reminded of an easier past, days of love and beauty with Paul's father. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty intense. It's pretty intense to think that you may, te- you, you have a life that includes love and some beauty, and then you don't have that at all. And you're yeah. thrust into this survival mode in the desert, the scrambling remnants of House Atreides, cut down by the machinations of Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. And having now to you don't assimilate. experience that. Yeah. yeah. Having to assimilate uh, and just deny yourself an important part of the human experience, love and beauty. It's pretty important for humans to thrive that they probably, on some level, interact with that. 
right? Right. Right. <laughs> One hopes. <laughs> One hopes. Right. And she is very, very fond of, of, of Gurney otherwise. And she's also quite fond of Stilgar. <laughs> she knows <laughs> yeah. not, we don't want her. She doesn't want to, doesn't want to lose Stilgar, I believe is, is what she says. We must not lose that man. Jixa thought Paul's plan must work. Anything else would be the highest tragedy. She says, <laughs> oh gosh, I love this scene where, where Jessica, you know, walks up to Paul and the crowd kind of parts and gets out of her way um, as she goes over to him. Um, and she thinks to herself, all men beneath your position covet your station. Went the Bene Gesserit axiom. Yep. But she found no covetousness in these faces. <laughs> they were held at a distance by the religious ferment around Paul's leadership. And she recalled another Bene Gesserit saying, prophets have a way of dying by violence. That's right. That's right. Good shit. And I, and I think this <laughs> is, you know, really reinforcing what we were talking about earlier that, you know, there is this distance between, there is a bit of a distance between Paul and his followers um, because of this belief in him now. Indeed. That they have this belief. And it's religious, isn't it? It really is, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, the, I think that's what separates the Bene Gesserit axiom from the reality, is that all men beneath your position cover your situation. However, because of the religious ferment around Paul's leadership, that doesn't seem to be the case based on her observation of the people. Right. Right. That's wild. But I guess it, I guess it makes sense on some level, right? Their religious ferment around his leadership, his, his leadership, his relationship with them has become religious in a sense. And, uh, and it doesn't seem to be causing any covetous jealousy or envy or anything like that among these folks. Right. Unity, if anything. Sure. Yeah. Around a common cause, or so they think. Right. Exactly. And then the question comes up. One of Paul's companions, bolder than the others, glances across at Silgar and says, Are you going to call him out, Muad'Dib? Now's the time for sure. They'll think you a coward if you... Who dares call me a coward, Paul demanded, hand flashing to Chris Knife. A bit of theatricality here from Paul, I think. Yes, I totally agree. Right? I'm glad you said that. Yes. There is, he is very conscious of the performance of what he's doing. Of theatricality. Like, theatricality, stage presence. That's what he's doing. He's going all Bane on us. But yeah, he, he, he's making this, he knows this is a very pivotal moment. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's time to, you know, he actually gets up on higher onto a platform, elevates himself a Indeed. little bit. Great. This um, is amazing shit here. Yes. And this is, this is so good. And he waits for total quiet in the cavern. Paul lifted his chin, spoke in a voice that carried to the farthest corners. You are tired of waiting. Paul said, right. I love that. He speaks through them in a sense, in that moment yep. of, he speaks out loud the thing that they are feeling, that they are sick of waiting. They're ready to pounce on the Harkonnens. They're ready to, to reclaim, you know, glory for themselves, to advance their, their people's destiny in a sense. Yeah. Um, they're, they're sick of waiting. And like, so for, it's important for Paul to acknowledge that as the leader of this, but I think is really interesting approach. Yeah, it is. And, uh, <laughs> and it's very, it's it it has this real moment of shock because i think he says uh 
he says something along the lines of you, do you think I'm, you, you're waiting for me to call a Stilgar or something like that. I think he says, do you think I'm stupid? Yeah. <laughs> and everyone's like, gasp. What? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> what does that mean? And even Jessica. Yeah. I was just gonna say, even Jessica, you know, in that moment says he's accepting the religious mantle. He must not do it. <laughs> is is her <laughs> thoughts in that moment. But yeah, um, her her interpretation of all of this stuff is is excellent. Because he he finds himself in a situation where well, she finds herself in a situation where she's watching and being like, ooh, careful, careful, watch out. You know, he's pulling a, like, is it Martin Luther? Is he like, he's like, it's all wrong. <laughs> Reform. Reform. We're going to do this different now. It's different. <laughs> and she's, she's cautious. You know, do you think the less, the least on Al-Gayab is stupid. That stunned silence. Imagine that everyone just goes quiet. <laughs> you have all these people assembled and you're like, Ugh. ways change. <laughs> and somebody, I like that he gets pushed back. We'll say what's to change, right? Yeah, he gets pushed back from the crowd, and in 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 Paul almost, I think Paul acquiesces to this, but then he says, "You'll hear me first. Mm. He wants to be heard." Yeah, yep. And dude, when he goes into it, it's does great. still <clears throat> does Stilgar rule all this? <laughs> he says himself that he does not. Do I rule? Even Stilgar does my bidding on occasion, and the sages, the wisest of the wise. Listen to me and honor me in council. Indeed. And I love how, you know, he goes from there and starts to point out, you know, he points to his mother. Does my mother rule? You know, and he starts to just, you know, really challenge the way that they have structured their society. He starts to Indeed. just like point at it. He even brings up his mother here, right? Does my mother yeah. rule? Still and all the other troop leaders ask her advice in almost every major decision. You know this, but does a reverend mother walk the sand or lead a razia against the Harkonnen? And uh, this is where Jessica's like, careful. Yeah. Careful what you're doing here. But she realizes that he is going directly for their uncertainty, right? Because she knows that they know the message, that they know what's going on with the cylinder, right? They understand that the contents, the contents of the cylinder that he has, by the way, are, are discussing that the the Harkonnens are in dire straits, right? They're not getting reinforcements. Right. They're not getting anything. We talked about this in the last chapter. Yeah. But they are immobilized and are cut yeah. off. Yes. And, and it's funny because I like this. Uh, I, I like this. He, he finds himself among this throng of people who things are done a certain way. And suddenly he has to really start to try to challenge that way and manipulate his way through this because they're like, well, listen, this is the way it's done. You, you are to challenge them. But he's, a, but he's like, but, but what's our goal, right? I, I like this. He's getting, he's like, let's, let's back it up a little. Like, what is our goal? And then yeah. he, when he says to unseat Raban, the Harkonnen beast, and remake our world into a place where, they, where we may raise our families in happiness and miss an abundance of water, is that our goal, right? I like that he's starting to turn it that direction because he knows that he's going to present information about Raban that shows weakness and how there is a critical time to move. In other words, forget about the, the little things. For, forget about the more intimate things like me challenging or dispatching of Silgar. Think about the big picture, and I'm going to really start setting up the argument for the big picture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yep. And no, it's and funny like, because he uses kind of like sophomoric 
at times reasoning like, do you smash your knife before a battle? <laughs> like, the equivocations <laughs> he's making are, are lean, but he's trying he's, and, and it's working because he's Paul. Right. But, right. And he leans into the, the idea of him having, you know, a prowess beyond anybody else and how he's without like, boasting. You know, Without boasting, <laughs> he says, you know, I can best any of you on the practice floor. You know this. And you know that in single one-on-one combat, Stilgar and nobody else could could actually take him, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's like he really asserts and plays into, I think, interestingly, plays into the Fremen idea of, of he, him being the strongest. Um, yes. I think he does lean into that. But even though even though he challenges other aspects of their culture, yeah, absolutely, it is. It, it's it is an interesting way to go about it because it, he's met with a bit of anger when he says Stilgar no has said I can't win. I, I mean that he can't win, and then he goes on to say, "You've seen me. This isn't a boast, like you were just saying a moment ago." But it's funny that before he goes into that tirade, there they seem to be angry mutterings going about, right. Everybody's but what we, what we realize from Jessica's perspective is that he's, quote, using the voice well, but that's not enough. They have good insulation against vocal control. He must catch them with logic. I love that. Logic yeah. is, is, is very important here. It's what appeals to them. It's, it's the way they approach their survival. Of course. You know, we need as much water as we can, so we're going to devise ways to not lose a single drop. Like that, that is our, That's what motivates us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's laying it up too. He's 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 setting up the t ball <laughs> by <laughs> by saying things like Raban is under quota, Raban is underperforming. He I like that he turns this conversation off of I'm supposed to be dealing with the Stilgar situation now into let's talk about something like Raban. We yeah. understand that the that for eighty fucking years the Harkonnen punished these people. A lot of these people remember that, I'm sure. And now they're back again. Raban is Harkonnen. We know that this was one of uh, Harkonnen, uh, Vladimir Harkonnen's flaws, was not even considering them. It wasn't even like he exalted in cruelty against the Fremen. He just dismissed them entirely. Right. <laughs> As a non-factor. They're nothing. He, I think he says it multiple times. He's like, they're not, there's, there's like 10 of them. Forget them. They stink, right? <laughs> they stink, but they were gross. routinely hunted for sport and cruelly treated, etc. And of course, he's that 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 memory exists in these people. And now he's saying, "Hey, that guy, he's there. One of those guys is there, and he's cut off." Or, or I think he he leads them into determining that they are cut off. Right? Paul says well, he, something like, uh, "You yeah. know, they're they're not they're below quarter Arrakis. He has no people to come to his help." And and somebody just from the crowd goes, "They're cut off!" Like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> like, "Oh, I get it now." <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. And that's when Paul's like, "Okay, cool. This is the direction we want it to go." And then he busts out the ducal signet. I swore never worry again until I was ready to lead my troops over all of Arrakis and claim it as my rightful fief. Right. Oh, it's so good. Really when good. Sh- when he shouts, you know, he's been working. He's been doing lots of crowd work at this point. He's For really sure. working the crowd up, hype manning them up, getting them the you know motivated and inspired. And he shouts, who rules here? He raised his fist. I rule here. I rule on every square inch of Arrakis. This is my ducal fief, whether the emperor says yay or nay. 
he gave it to my father and it comes to me through my father. So he just basically asserts his rightful place as the owners of uh, Arrakis. Yeah. And, and they're, they're going to uphold that with the power of the Fremen. <laughs> Indeed. And it's funny because it, as he's doing this, he has such a profound sense for these people that after saying that, he, he you know, like rocks back on his feet. And there's this moment where he, he's like, almost. Like right? they're I, almost, almost I almost have him. He has that sense about him. And then he starts to talk about holding positions of importance of Arrakis and how Stilgar is one of those men who are important who are, and I don't want to bribe him. And, and it is not out of gratitude. He doesn't yeah. say anything like that. He just says, because this is the way it should be. I'm not stupid. Do you think I'm stupid? Again with that, I'm not going to cut off my right arm and leave it bloody on the floor of this cavern. Very, you know, very hyperbolic here. Who is there to say I'm not the rightful rule of Arrakis? Must I prove it by leaving every Fremen tribe in the Erg without a leader? Right? He's, this was such a good play. Because yeah. he goes from, I don't want to kill Stilgar to I'll kill every leader. Because yeah. <laughs> that's what you're saying we're supposed to do. And, and then sort of logicking into, don't you see how that's counterproductive when we have Raban on the ropes? Do you understand? Right. Exactly. I have Raban on the ropes. Am I going to kill all your leaders? And then what? How's that going to work? Let's, mm -hmm. it, it, it's like, it's funny because it's very, it's very smoke and mirrors on, on one level. Cause he's saying over here, over here is Raban, but, but Stilgar is an important thing too. Cause he, he respects the Fremen too much. He knows that they're not going to just, he's not going to just say, but Raban, he's not going to do the fucking movie thing where he's like, the enemy's out there. Quit arguing in here. Right. <laughs> it's going to take more than that. It's going to take a little more than that to set these people on this course. Uh, so he's, he's playing both. And I, and I really think that's good shit. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. It's a really good point. I don't want to take away from the strength of the tribe. Exactly. I don't want to. Why kill all our best men when we really could be killing the Harkonnens? And that, that is that sort of cliche thing. But, but the way he moves himself up to it makes sense. And he's just like, I'm going to start a chant, Long Live Muad'Diva. Or somebody, somebody shouts it, right? I think somebody does. I don't know, Stilgar. Stilgar starts the chant, Long Live He's like fucking the hype man. He yeah. goes right into <laughs> Long Live Muad'Div. And what I love about this is Stilgar is not like this. Like Stilgar has been very quiet and reserved and observing yeah. and wa probably wondering. It'd be, it'd be, it's, it's a shame we don't have Stilgar's POV here. In, in in just this moment of, yeah, long live. A deafening roar fills the cavern. Stilgar gets him going. It's this moment where they, it, it, it's such a, it must be such an interesting revelation for these people in this moment to realize that Stilgar is going to live. And that's cool because Stilgar's our leader. Oh, and these other leaders don't have to die. And oh my God, we're on the precipice of taking away these people and taking this planet for ourselves. Right. And the, the, the lure of that, that's very seductive to people who've been subjugated over time by the various imperial houses who've ruled here. And now is their moment to shine. And Paul's like, forget killing people. I can kill all of you. I, it's obvious I can. <laughs> and I, and why? Why do I have to? If you know I can, it's almost like saying logic, right? Getting back to Jessica's point. If you know I can kill all your leaders, can't we just assume that they've been defeated just by that statement and not make me go about wasting material? You're <laughs> Fremen. We don't waste yeah. material. If you're telling me I can kill all of you guys and we know it's true because Stilgar can kill probably all of you and I can kill him with my Mortal Kombat heart kick. Doesn't <laughs> it make sense 
that instead of wasting this material, we turn it on Raban. Yeah. And he yeah. says, Stilgar leads this tribe. Indeed. Let no, let no man mistake that. He commands with my voice. What he tells you, it is as though I told you. Powerful. So he has totally united the two of them in, in front of everybody. He made yeah. a spectacle of it. He made a scene of it. There was a performance. <laughs> and the ultimate moment, Matt, is when Fremen in Atreides culture fuses. Right. Exactly. And that's it. Now now you have your fucking juggernaut. This is what he's been building up to. This gets back to something Diabetic Dave was saying before, the, the, the manipulations. Now he's saying... Now he's got Silgar talking about ducal rings and signets, and I swear. And now the Fremen are suddenly part of House Atreides in a in a in sort of chan- tangentially, right? Mm-hmm. But by 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 Stilgar saying, "I take the knife from the hands of my Duke," I think he calls him. And uh, where my Duke commands, I shall place this blade. Paul said, and he repeats it. Of course, he essentially is knighting Stilgar into House Atreides. Yeah, and I think exactly. that's really fucking cool, right? And it and it show like kind of like what we've already been saying, but it, it it needs to be public like this. Like it needs to be shown across the tribe. It needs to be performed. Like that's the point. You know, I, I feel like one of the things this book does so well is capture the importance of ritual in a culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that we lose sight of a lot because we don't have a lot of rituals when you really think about it not especially not ornate or complex rituals we have very casual ones we have holidays and we always get together we have food and that's a ritual but you know there's not a lot of rules to that you know what i mean and there is like they have this like procedure they have these rules almost laid out and it's like they're presenting that to to everybody as a show of this is us publicly showing you that we are united we are bonded and, you know, we are not challenging one another, and that is now in the past. Yeah. Um, I just think it's a really cool way of showing that ritual is the way that they get that across to everyone, that they message that to everybody. And it's not written in books. It's just what's worked. Uh-huh. Right? It's cool. It's really, it's really cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah, man. It, it, this, this scene is fantastic. And also, by doing, this, by doing this for Stilgar, it does a couple things. It creates all this fervor. And it takes what could be the possibility of Silgar losing face, even amongst his fervor. Because let's be real, the fervor dies down. Everyone goes back to the little, their little, their little places where they're going to sleep. People start whispering, "Man, man, Silgar's a bitch." <laughs> right? For real? Yeah. Like there's yeah. that possibility that it that it becomes like, yeah, man, like Fremen are stupid. They start bullshit, and they're like, dude. He's kind of a bitch. But now that you've gone from not only am I not going to kill him to I'm going to essentially knight him in this ceremonial Atreides way, he really saves face. I think Jessica says something like that, that the tribal commander must lose no face among those he should obey him. And she calls this wise. Paul elevating Stilgar is a good call here. Right. And dude, the fucking horniness of the crowd my oh, knife yeah. goes where Stilgar commands it, Paul Muad'Dib. Let us fight soon, Paul Muad'Dib. Let us wet our world with the blood of Harkonnens. Let's go. I'm like, man, you guys are ready. You got them horny and ready. Damn. They are ready to plunge Chris Knife into Harkonnen flesh. Got those murder boners raging. Indeed. Good stuff. They could not be more ready. We are taking them at the crest, says Jessica. <laughs> And uh, Paul retreats to a chamber, lets things dies down. He's going to bring 
Gurney Halleck back here, Jessica thought, and she wondered at the strange mingling of emotions that filled her. Gurney and his music had been part of so many pleasant times on Caledon before the move to Arrakis. She felt that Caledon had happened to some other person. It near, in the near three years since, she has become another person, having to confront Gurney forced a reassessment of the change. I like mm. that. I like that. I right. like that because it's not even anything personal against Gurney, but you know how this no. goes. People have experienced change in their life over multiple years, and then you see that one person from your past, and you're like, fuck, I got to kind of confront like what my life used to be, or I'm reminded of it. Even if it was awesome, it's, it's, that's difficult, you know? It's, it, that's a, that's yeah. a hard thing to wrap your head around. Right. Have you ever right. experienced anything like that? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, like uh, friends going, you know, since I moved across the country, you know, there was a, a stretch of time where I didn't get back home for, for years and there were people right. I hadn't seen in five, six years. And, you know, in your twenties, you, you become quite a different person from 25 sure. to 30, you know, that's a, that's a huge gap. And, um, and it's interesting, like, and I, and I feel like that's kind of what's happening in this, in this moment. It's, it's Jessica realizing, oh, I'm going to be perceived by a person who knows who I used to be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, otherwise, everybody around me now is people, they only understand the person I am now. That's it. And it's multifaceted um, because not only do you have to yeah. confront the new perception that he may have of you, yeah. but your own thoughts around the life you used to have and, and the difficulty of engaging in that thing. Right. Right. And the pain cool. of it, you know, the, the, pain it, the painful sure. reminder of it. Yeah, yeah. because the, it, I'm sure if Jessica could snap her finger and Duke Leto could be alive and she could be back with Duke Leto, she'd probably take it. She strikes me as probably taking that, you know? Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah. It's tough to say. <laughs> oh, what? Can we, well, can we, can we oh jump boy. to this one line? There is some mom shit I really want to get to. <laughs> Let's go to Jessica's um, mom stuff. Her mom shit. What can his desert woman do for a Duke except serve him coffee? <laughs> she brings him no power, no family. Paul has only one major chance to ally himself with a powerful great house, perhaps mm. even with the imperial family. There are marriageable princesses, after all, and every one of them Benny Gesserit trained. Yes. So tension here between Chani and Jessica. Mm. Jessica does not, at the end of the day, really see Chani as worthy of Paul. Um, that Paul she goes. This is be, this is back and forth, though. This is the yeah. tug of war in her own. It head. is. Yeah. It is, yeah. And she ends up settling on 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 being okay with Chaney, but yeah, this makes complete sense because as 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 parents do, that sometimes children fail to do, and 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 he's an adult child, but you know what I'm saying is is they see the bigger picture because they've been through it before, right? Right. And we struggle to do that. I've, I have countless examples of not listening to my parents, only to then realize they were right because oh, they have perspective that I didn't have, which is their their experience, their wisdom. And the right. wisdom here makes sense because think about it from her perspective. She's like, yeah, doesn't bring it because we're sitting here. Yeah. The, 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 the Fremen are horny. They're ready to kill. She, she, he got them all whipped up. Let's just for argument's sake, say they oust Raban. They get rid of them. The land shrug takes action against, against Shaddam. He gets ousted. They install a new emperor. Atreides <laughs> is now running the, 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 the Arrakis again. Great. But what is now what? Who's your ally in the Imperium? Yeah. Who's Paul's ally in the Imperium? He can't be wed to somebody else, right? She sees it further down in the future. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. Who are you going to, like, now, let's just, okay, we win. Yay. But remember, this is Dune. Remember, this is the Imperium. Harshaw Conan's not dead. 
Okay. Who's your ally? Yeah. Well, you can't marry anybody because you got this, this native lady who doesn't really bring much to the table, politically speaking. Royally speaking. Yeah. Politically yeah. speaking. Right. She's great. Chaney's a great, a great character and a great companion to him in, in, in steadfastly loyal and the mother of his son, uh, whatever the fuck. And, and, and it's, and it's a relationship like this is very, uh, Crusader Kings train. Like this is, this is the marry. We married for love. This is Rob Stark. I married for love. I didn't marry for the Alliance. I didn't marry right. for, right. And mom's <laughs> thinking in the, in the deep future, like Cheney's great now, but once you're sitting as the Duke of a, the house of Trades and things settle and the land shrouds back in play and the houses are doing their thing, then what are you going to do? You've betrothed, you're, you're married. You, <laughs> who's your alliance yeah so what else can you do now it's pretty cool it's pretty cool for her to kind of go through these thoughts as a mom probably will like you said some mother shit yeah as long as Ch- cheney lives paul yep. will not see his duty jessica thought she mm-hmm. has given him a son and that is enough yes that's where she currently stands or you know where she's in this moment yeah um but boy howdy yep. boy does this fucking scene change <laughs> absolutely <laughs> When our boy Gurney comes bursting through the draperies and just goes straight to pushing a knife into a Jessica's back. God damn. You thought you'd escape there, witch. <laughs> I think that's his line. Oh, so good. And then Paul comes in and sees them. He's like, here is a mother. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. And dude, to see Gurney holding your mom at knife point. And, and, and Gurney clever enough to be like, if you say a word, I know how this shit works. Yeah. You say a he word, knows. I'm plunging. I'm plunging. <laughs> don't you <laughs> say, don't you do it. <laughs> but yeah, this is a difficult situation for Paul's like, what is happening? I swore an oath to slay the betrayer of your father. Do you think I can forget the man who rescued me from Harkonnen's slave pit? Gave me freedom, life and honor. Gave me friendship. The thing I prized above all else I have the betrayer of my knife. No one can stop me from. You couldn't be more wrong, Paul calmly says. Mm-hmm. Wrong am I? Let us hear it from the woman herself. And Jessica's like, finally, I get to talk. And she's in, and, and uh, I think Paul, Paul says, the betrayer was UA. I tell you this only once, Gurney. The evidence is complete, cannot be controverted. It was UA. I do not care how you came by your suspicion, for it can be nothing else. But if you harm my mother, I'll have your blood. <laughs> so good excellent and then here you know gurney is like no that's impossible he had imperial conditioning that Suk can't school. be removed yep and paul just says i know a way to remove that conditioning you know yeah. dispelling the idea that 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 ua couldn't be the one that that his conditioning was impervious it's not true indeed um and he has evidence he has the evidence of UA's, uh, I think even confession essentially of what his involvement was, yeah. but it's just not at this place. It's at a different seat. The Tabor seat. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His dad showed it. His dad, his dad, dude, when, when the doubt starts to enter Gurney's mind, and I love it from Jessica's perspective, she can feel his arm start to shake like, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done? And she thinks he has great control. Gurney's arm troubling against her neck. The point of the knife at her back now moved with uncertainty. And that's something Jessica notices. That's something a Benny Jesuit senses. She's like, hmm, I sense uncertainty now. Right? <laughs> Anyone else would be shitting their pants thinking they're going to die. But Jessica's like, no, he's now uncertain. 
the tiniest right. little movement from Gurney and Jessica's like, he's not sure now. And I know this. Yeah. Just that knife starting to slip just the, the littlest. And Paul has to really appeal to him emotionally. I've heard her sobbing at night. You don't know. You have not seen her eyes stab flame when she speaks of killing Harkonnen. What you have not done is remember the lessons you learn in a Harkonnen slave. But you speak of pride, my father's friendship. Didn't you learn the difference between Harkonnen and Atreides so that you could smell Harkonnen trick by the stink they left on it? Didn't you learn that Atreides' loyalty is bought with love while Harkonnen coin is hate? Couldn't you see through the very nature of this betrayal? This is really going after Gurney's heartstrings. Because we know how Gurney feels about not being successful in the course of his duty to the Atreides family. It's a very difficult thing for him to wrap his head around. It's it's everything to him. I mean, the the love he has for Leto and by extension Leto's family is immense into... And to think you failed, dude, you fucked up here. And <laughs> yeah, Gurney starts to be like, wrong. oh God, I think I did. <laughs> this stinks. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm uh, holding a knife to one of my pals in a pretty aggressive way. <laughs> it's powerful to say, I love you, Gurney, and I'm still going to love you after I kill you. Yeah. Because you're wrong yeah. about this. Because you're fucking wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and, and I, there's, a, there's an important line coming up here where Paul talks about his father's perception of people. And I think it's great writing. Paul says, my father had an instinct for friends. He gave his love sparingly, but with never an error. His weakness lay in misunderstanding hatred. (laughs) He thought anyone who hated Harkonnens could not betray him. That is a great fucking line. And so very true, right? We see this a lot. If you take somebody who may be considered, say, by our standards, Western standards, say, morally upstanding, and they're involved in a conflict with somebody who isn't morally upstanding, right? Part of the disadvantage there is maybe not even being able to see that because of your own morality. Like, how could people behave such... There's a great line in Two Towers, what can men do against such reckless hate, Right? It's that moment where Theoden's like, holy shit, like they're, they're operating differently. We're honorable people. They're op- operating on a different playing field. And I like, I love, I love that moment where he's like, my dad didn't understand hatred, right? He didn't make the connection that dad's mistake was we all hate the Harkon and cool. We're all friends. Right. Wrong, dude. Wrong. Because there's something it's. You, you, we talked about this with Har- in our Harkonnen, in our Vladimir Harkonnen chapters, which was his ability to understand the individual, right? He struggles with the masses, but the individual, yeah. he can really manipulate. He can really figure out what makes him tick and understand him. And that's what he could do to you. Eh? Yeah. Right under the Duke's fucking nose. Exactly. Leto couldn't do it. He couldn't imagine. Yui hates the Harkonnen so much. How would he betray us? So he just wouldn't even consider the possibility. Because he hates them so much, he betrayed you. That's fucking crazy. Exactly. Because exactly. he hates them so much, he betrayed you. <laughs> God damn. This book's deep. It's brutal. Yeah. But no, I love the moment where where Jessica does finally release, or is released from Gurney. He releases her. Oh, God, this is great. There was no special command in the words, no trick to play on his weaknesses. Yep. But Gurney's hand fell away. 
She crossed to Paul, stood in front of him, not touching him. Um, but yeah, no, I just love the way does that, not use the voice, right? Right. There's no, there's no need at this point. He already realizes him for himself, his, his being wrong. And then of course, Gurney does this whole kill me. I stink. <laughs> <laughs> kill me. Kill so, me. Such a fucking prima donna. So, so much, so dramatic, Gurney. I like how, <laughs> at one point, I don't know where it is, but Paul's like, can people that are, that love me, please stop telling me to kill them today. Yeah, no, he goes like, stop. How, how many, how many kinds of an idiot do you think I am? Must I go through this with every man I need? That's right. That's right. That's a great fucking line. <laughs> Such a good line. He's just like, shut up, dumbass. Like, yeah, why yeah. are you doing this? And Jessica <laughs> says it too. She's like, Gurney, you, why do you insist that the traders must kill those they love? Stop. Put your, put your cover up your chest. We're not killing you. Right? <laughs> not today. And, and, and Jessica's great here. This is this is some of Jessica's finest stuff in many chapters yeah. because of the way she delicately can handle Gurney. Because think of the immense shame that Gurney feels right now. Right. Immense. For what he's doing. Right. Yeah. You thought you were doing a thing for Leto, she said, and for this I honor you. Yep. That's ah, that's just such good camaraderie and honesty and friendship. Yep. Understanding that this person's intention was in a sense pure. Indeed. Yep. Um, I'll go back to Diabetic Dave in the chat. He's, uh, Jessica says earlier that manipulating a man with a voice turns him into a puppet. It weakens him. If they still want Gurney as an ally, they should avoid using the voice on him as it would no longer be as powerful as an ally. I don't know if Diabetic Dave is cynical, assuming that that's, that's the, what I, I, it's a good observation, but I don't think it's a hundred percent happening here. I don't think Jessica's going, I want to future manipulate this guy. So I'm going to be nice to him in this moment. I think she's having a genuine moment of humanity here. I don't think yeah. she's thinking, I would oh, if I use the voice here, I won't be able to manipulate him in the future. I definitely don't think that that's the case. I, it's a, I like that take. I just disagree with it. But I wanted to read it because it's well thought out. It makes sense, yeah. But I think in this moment, I think there's real humanity for a person that was close to the man she loved, a person that she's always been close to, a friend to, somebody who lived in her household, who trained her son. I think this is humanity here. I don't think this is, I don't think Paul and Jessica are always like, evil machinations, selfishness. That's, <laughs> right. that's, it's not, that's too basic for me. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Yeah. I think it's, I think there's a, I think there's a genuine moment of humanity. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. I think it is her just genuinely <clears throat> reaching out. Indeed. Yep. But it's time for Gurney to play them a song. Yeah, bust out the bust out the ballast, man. Got that ballast? You got that hot shit? Indeed. Yes. <laughs> yep. But yeah, yep. no. This yep. is this is just like a nice moment of of uh, kind of communion between all three of these characters. You know, they've they yeah. reunited. They are the last of the house of the Atreides, and here they are, kind of. In a sense, I think kind of grieving together a little bit. That you yeah, know, for sure. Grieving they, the dude. They haven't gotten together since the fall of the house, right? Exactly. Since, since all a, that shit happened. It's a huge moment. In almost three three years, I think it has been. So, so it's been three long years of not knowing whether these people are alive, thinking that Jessica was a traitor when she wasn't. And I just love that all that tension. You know, for one, it's it's cool that all this tension is resolved now in this moment. Sure. It, all, almost like a knot in somebody's back. Like you just got the knot out of your back and now you can move again. And now you Indeed. can you can you can shuffle and, and move the way you need to. And 
now they have the flexibility and the unity to move forward as the leadership of the Fremen. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very important moment that just went down. Think about it. That's something that's, that Gurney's been clutching to that anger, that hatred for such a long time. Motivating uh, him. uh, Imagine, I've never experienced this. And, And I can only imagine what it's like to experience something like thinking, I hate this person because I really believe this truth about them to realize that that truth isn't entirely accurate, right? That, yeah. That's got to do something to your psyche. I, I've oh, never yeah. been in that <laughs> position before. Once in my life, there was a person in our friend group who was like, I'm not too fond of that person. I think they're kind of dickheads. And then, I, and then I hung out with just that person. I was like, this person's really fucking cool. I was dead wrong. I was also a lot younger. I didn't, couldn't read people as well. I was like in my early 20s. And I remember thinking, dude, this guy's fucking cool. I like him a lot. I was wrong. I just the wrong impression of him. And I thought that for months and months. And then one day, by circumstance, I was alone with him and we were bullshitting and hanging out. And I was like, this dude's fucking awesome. I was dead <laughs> wrong about this guy. Nothing like hatred. Nothing like yeah. burning hatred revenge. And then being like, oh, <laughs> whoops, I'm wrong about this. But it was, a, it was an eye-opening experience for me in my early 20s to go like, wow, that's, that's crazy. I'm completely wrong about this guy. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, sometimes first impressions are not everything. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> but yeah, I, I like this. See, he, they sing. We're going to go ahead and we're not going to sing, okay? We're not going to sing. Sorry. <laughs> it's not happening. Yes, yeah, so we, we're not going to, we're not singing. Okay, we're done. Uh, but, um, man, Paul gets fucking crazy right here. <laughs> he, he gets so fun. He goes for the jungle juice, that ever clear jungle juice, the hardcore shit. And he knows he's going to go try to survive uh, the test of the Reverend Mother. He's going to take some of the water of life because he's going to drown a maker or drown a baby worm and and obtain yep. the water of life and take it for himself and this will be the way of determining whether he is the Quizats Hadarak the the member the male Bene Gesserit who can see into both lines the male and the female lines of the ancestry and so, past and present and past also, and present also i like this idea that let's not go past it they drowned a mini worm and then the byproduct of that is the water of life <laughs> it's worse than veal damn Good fucking gravy. It probably tastes a lot worse than veal too. Although I've never eaten veal, I feel. Too I don't. Bad. I don't judge whatever, but that's just not for me. I'm. I'm good. I've seen the little calves in the fucking. I live in Cowtown. I've seen the calves in the little holders. It's fucking dark, bro. <laughs> it's fucking dark when you drive by the poor little fucks just standing in there. That's it. That's their life. Oh, anyway, God. <laughs> water life's a little bit different because there's some prescience in there, or or death. Come to find out, or, or you drink, <laughs> or you drink it when you're pregnant and you have Valia. <laughs> Whoops! <laughs> Whoops! <laughs> Made a super baby. Sorry. <laughs> Why is this baby talking like a forty-five-year-old? That's weird. <laughs> but yeah, he's gonna uh, he's gonna do his thing, which is gonna lead us to uh, the final chapter we're gonna be discussing on our penultimate episode, Matthew. Oh shit! Chapter forty-five. This is kind of a short one, but um, yeah, I guess it's your turn to read. Ha ha! You got to read this long one. Gotta read this. And before you do, let's make our little thing here. And it came to pass in the third year of the desert war that Paul Muadib lay alone in the cave of birds beneath the Kizwa hangings of an inner cell. And he lay as one dead, 
caught up in the revelation of the water of life, his being translated beyond the boundaries of time by the poison that gives life. Thus was the prophecy made true that the Lisan Algabe may be both might be both dead and alive. Yep. From Collected Legends of Arrakis by the Princess Irulan. Indeed. This is amazing. Um, so I believe we're going to have it revealed to us that we're going to come across Paul in this uh, seemingly dead state, but it's going to have been, he's going to have been in this state for, I think they say three weeks. Is that true? I think that's what, I think that's, I think that's what comes to pass, but I like this. I like how this opens and and I'm just going to start it. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of just read the beginning of the chapter. Yeah. Cheney came up out of the, Habanya Basin in the pre-dawn darkness, hearing the thopter that had brought her from the south go were were off to a hiding place in the vastness. Around her, the escort kept its distance, fanning out into the rocks of the ridge to probe for dangers, and giving the maid of Muad'Dib, the mother of his firstborn, the thing she had requested, a moment to walk alone. And she thinks, why did he summon me, she asked herself. He told me before that I must remain in the south with little Lado and Aaliyah. She gathered her robe and leaped lightly up across a barrier rock and onto the climbing path that only the desert train could recognize in the darkness. Pebbles slithered underfoot, and she danced across them without considering the nimbleness required. First of all, that last sentence is awesome. Oh, it's so good. Doesn't even realize how much nimbleness she just used. It's like a, a cat. Like, do you have yeah. any idea how awesome that was, what you just did, you <laughs> asshole? That's amazing. Nah, I just got that natural ass agility, just baby. Boom. Ain't nothing, baby. Yeah. So. <laughs> I like this. So we, we open, it's dark. She's the, the thopter is going <laughs> taken off. It just left her here. And she's like, why have I been summoned? What's going on? I thought I was supposed to stay in the South. Last chapter told us, Paul's not crazy about using thoppers. He doesn't want yes. to rely on off world fuel. What is going on? Why am I here? It must be important. Why did he summon me? Right. And right. this, this gets her to Athaim, I think is this guy's Athim, Athaim. Uh, one of the uh, escorts she recognizes by name. Hurry, he hissed, and let her down the secret crevasse into the hidden cave. It will be light soon. The Harkonnens have been making desperate patrols over some of these regions. We dare not chance discovery now. And uh, Athim, this guy, leads her to the Reverend Mother Jessica. Yes, indeed. And pointedly, <laughs> interestingly, Jessica greets Cheney in this extremely formal way. In yes, this, in this very dry. Oh, how is my grandson? And she and Ch- Chaney thinks immediately. So it's to be the ritual greeting, <laughs> and her fears returned. Where is Muad'Dib? Why isn't he here to greet me? And Chani replies, "He is healthy and happy, my mother. Uh, I left him with Aaliyah in the care of Hara. My mother, Jessica thought. Yes, she has the right to call me that in the formal greeting. She has given me a grandson." So it kind of goes on that way of Indeed. them going back and forth, um, not really revealing much. Each kind pleasantries. of like pleasantries and very calculated holding back cards. Um, but we come to learn uh, the reason behind that for Jessica. Yes. Yep. Yeah, this is excellent because this has got to be that moment where you half expect Jessica to hold up a sign that says they're listening. Right, <laughs> she's acting so strange and formal what this doesn't make any sense and of course in the midst of all this cheney has these pangs of fear about muadib about paul what's up with paul and and she hints at it 
yeah, some people are jealous because, you know, I got a husband, right? <laughs> I have a husband still, right? Uh-huh. Right? <laughs> it's just like, please tell me what's going on. Come on. Come on. Yeah. Is she preparing me for grief? Cheney asks, right? Because at one point, Jessica says, grief is the price of victory. And Cheney's like, oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, here well, we go. Why am I-, I like how Cheney just outs with it. Why am I here? And she's like, I summoned you. Me. And, uh, and she's like, well, the message was signed by Muad'Dib. And Jessica's like, I signed it in the presence of his lieutenants. And obviously, Jessica's a master forger. She's a Benny Jesuit. Oh, yeah. Sure. That's all easy that, shit. That's, that's, that's forgery. That's, that's 101 shit. I was just saying, that's like your first two weeks of Benny Jesuit school. Forgeries, <laughs> lying, <laughs> spy classes, wet works. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. By like the, by like week six, you're stabbing lungs, right? Heart <laughs> kick is like year two, but still. Yeah. Yeah. Paul got to learn that one early. Paul got that early. Yeah. Mom's like, I'm going to skip ahead to the heart kick, honey. It's fun. Thanks, mom. <laughs> I'm going to kick that pilot. <laughs> uh, anyway, Cheney took only a moment to calm herself. Then what is it I may do? She said, oh, uh, you, you, you were needed to help me revive Paul, Jessica said. And she thought, there, I said it in the precisely correct way, revive. Thus, she knows Paul is alive and knows that there is peril all in the same world. Uh, word, uh, excuse me. I love that. Word yep. choice, baby. Word choice. Yep. What do you suppose is, um, well, I guess, I guess we know what Cheney's thinking at this point. It's pretty clear. It's actually spelled out for us. But yeah, I like, I like that. Why, why do you suppose Jessica's being coy here? What do you think is the motivation for that? I thought, uh, by the end of the chapter or anyways, um, that it was a way of keeping it basically very, very, very on the down low Paul's condition. Indeed. Like she does not want the rest of the tribe knowing Paul's condition for one, that there, that the lease on Al Gabe would be this compromised and be this on sure. death's door or, or t- to all appearances fucking outright dead on the um, eve of their victory. Right of the of the big you know the big attack the big you we know, got real this. momentum. Oh wait, um, at least I know he's sleeping. Maybe we don't have it. <laughs> they just do a fucking weekend of Bernies. It's just weekend at least on Al Gabe's. They just fucking. <laughs> oh, I'm still okay. They puppeting his fucking arms. They stick him on a crucifix on the back of a worm. Oh, look, he's going. Look at him go, folks. That's our lease on Al Gabe. Muadib, come on, everybody, Muadib. <laughs> like he looks sleepy. They use those sticks that they get on the Fremen with just to like manipulate his arms or get on the uh, worms with. Yeah, that's probably it. I like how Jessica's like, Harkonnen said, man, she sent an agent among us to poison Paul. She's like, he's been poisoned, which is crazy because if there's an expert of poison, it's Jessica. Yeah, she she's like, shit. I've examined it. I can't even detect it. This is crazy. This is beyond Benny Jesuit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Beyond us. But I like that unceremonious nature in which this is almost discovered right it's cool yeah she's just like no he's not but but i like but but getting to that without just jumping that because there's really cool dialogue between the two where um you know uh, jessica talks talks about how the process of life are so low that they can be detected only with the most refined techniques i shudder to think what could have happened had I not been the one to discover him? He appears dead to the untrained eye. <laughs> the, you know, the scratches on the inside of the coffin. We don't want that for Paul. <laughs> no. 
And uh, Cheney's like, you have many reasons other than courtesy for summoning me. I know you, Reverend Mother. What is it you think I can do that you cannot do? And I love how Jessica thinks she's brave, lovely, and uh, so perceptive. She would have made a fine Benny Gesserit. Ah, starting Good to stuff. warm up. Starting to warm up. And uh, Cheney says, you may find, uh, Jessica says to Cheney, you may find this difficult to believe, but I do not know why I sent for you. It was an instinct, a basic intuition. The thought came on Biden. Send for Cheney, right? Yeah. yeah. I like that. This, because one of the things we, one of the things we talked about at the beginning of this book was the idea of, you know, animal nature versus human nature and instinct and how important that is to animals and how they only rely on instincts, right? And then there's this idea, maybe, and maybe, maybe that's not always good, but sometimes it is good, right? That's the right. balancing act that you have to have, right? You, you, beings are emotional, right? Beings are emotional. And there are times where you're going to benefit from that emotion and times where you're not going to. And you have to use your human reason to determine when, right? To not, to not let your emotions rule you, but to recognize that they are a part of you. And, uh, and, the instinct to send for Cheney happens to be the very right instinct. You, you, we are human animals, so to speak. We are humans. We are above animals in with our ability to reason or create art or whatever. And, and I know that that's a consideration here, right? You have to, you have to understand that emotions are part of your experience as a human being. And you have to know when to utilize them, when to listen to them, when to rely on them and when not to when you have to just be purely a pure being of reason. Right. And yeah. that's uh it's pretty cool that she just, her exact thought was send for Cheney, go in instinct is how Jessica describes it. No other way to describe it for her. Send right. for Cheney. And, and I think in my opinion, I, I think probably what helped influence that is a kind of innate understanding about Cheney that kind of like Stilgar that they are born and bred into this culture and they understand things a little maybe differently or a little more. And so Jessica says, I've done all I know to do. Indeed. That all. It is so far beyond what is usually supposed as all that you would def you would find difficulty imagining it. Yet I failed. So the and it's at this point where where Cheney actually brings up the idea of maybe it was Gurney. Indeed. And there was a great moment where Jessica says, not Gurney. And the two words carried an entire conversation. And <laughs> Cheney saw the searching, the tests, the memories of old failures that went into this flat denial. That that like that total full understanding of Gurney as a person and knowing no, absolutely that's like, not, completely not an option. Yeah, not an so option. So good. It's very very good. But when we come upon the scene with Paul laid out, Paul lay on a field pad against the far wall. A single glow globe above him illuminated his face. A black road covered him to the chest. Leaving his arms outside, it stretched along his sides. He appeared to be unclothed under the robe. The skin exposed, looked waxen, rigid. There was no visible movement to him. Cheney suppressed the desire to dash forward. She found her thoughts instead going to her son, and she realized in this instance that Jessica once had faced such a moment. Her man threatened by death, forced in her own mind to consider what might be done to save a young son— the realization formed a sudden bond with the older woman so that Cheney reached out and clasped Jessica's hand. The answering grip was painful in its intensity. Awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. It's really cool to see this bond finally start to form between Cheney and Jessica. This understanding. Yep. 
We do learn again, and it is confirmed here, Jack just says he's been like this for three weeks. She tried to revive him for a full week, right? Right, right. It's very good. I assure you he lives, but the thread of his life is so thin it could easily escape detection. Yeah. The the Fidekin or the Fidekin are suggesting that he's in a trance preparing for final battle, right? Some people, because some people know, his death commanders who are close to him know. Right. And um, yeah, I like that Cheney is is wondering, right? I, I think she kneels down to his face and senses a difference in the air, something about the spice, the ubiquitous spice whose odor permeated everything in Fremen life still. She says, you were not born to the spice as we were. Have you investigated the possibility that his body has rebelled against too much spice in his diet? Jessica's like, look, allergies are all negative. And they go back and forth. And um, Cheney says, when you change the water of life, you do within yourself by the inward awareness. Have you used this awareness to test his blood? Jessica's is normal from and blood, completely adapted to the diet and the life here. And Cheney's like, what the hell? Like, they're trying to figure it out. What right. is going on? It's so difficult for them in these few moments. Exactly. But I love, I love, again, this is like more evidence of Cheney having, for you know, lack of a better word, a native perspective, perspective in the sense Indeed. of like, I understand and think about spice and understand its effects probably more than, than you do. Easy. Um, and like she, you know, Jessica has already, in her mind, Jessica has already considered and written off the spice as being a contributing factor. She's not really thinking about that. Until, Cause she, cause yeah, it's barely in her mind as much as poison as a Benny right. Jesuit. Right. Exactly. And Cheney is the one bringing up the idea again of, well, wait, what about the spice? How is he reacting to that? Because you are still an outsider. You've only been here three years. That's, you know, exposure over time changes things. Um, and I think, I think it's just an interesting way to bring up a character with a, a different unique perspective and to help solve this problem. Yeah. I think this turns into Cheney asking if there were makers here, right? There are several. Yeah. This is how she figures it this out. This is how she starts going, well, hold on a second. He hasn't been at the ceremony. He's been aloof. And Jessica's like, okay, yep. Remembering her son's ambivalent feeling towards the spice drug. That's something that's come up before. He's not, in other words, he doesn't like, he, he doesn't like going deep on the, on the mushrooms. It's not really his thing. <laughs> Too far. Right. And, um, how did you know this? Jessica asked. Cause she's like, how did Cheney even know this? Because she wasn't there. Yeah. And she just says, it is spoken. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Too yeah. much is spoken. Jessica's admittedly, right? <laughs> it's a fair, it's a fair, it's a fair retort because you're hearing this so far away. His like, we need to be tighter with the information. That's Benny Jesuit thinking. Yeah. Yeah. It's for sure. Benny Jesuit thinking. And um, then, um, I love this moment. Get me the raw water of the maker. Cheney said, Jessica stiffened at the tone of command in Cheney's voice, then observed the intense concentration in the younger woman and said at once. Yeah, yeah. this is great. Jessica, that, that immediate reaction that stiffened at the command, like this, this lady doesn't command me, but then realizing that it's being done in a way that is for the same shared goal, which is Paul's well being. And right. Jessica knowing that there's probably nobody more than Cheney who wants Paul to be okay, except right. maybe Jessica. Right. And that now Cheney may have information that, that Jessica simply doesn't know. Yeah, that th- this information could be the key to it, and this isn't that why you brought her here in the first place to bring in some of her knowledge and her awareness and her thoughts about this and and analyze it from another angle, essentially. Yeah. So once she realizes, oh, she's applying herself to this, 
um, and and is really thinking about it, then I'm just going to follow her lead. Like I'll, I'll, I brought you here to follow your lead. Right. My instinct was to bring you here. I'm not quite sure why, but it now it's becoming apparent to me. Exactly. exactly. Trust these feelings. Trust these thoughts. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, they call in a water. The, Give me the raw water of the maker. And of course, this happens. And um, Jackson knelt beside Cheney, holding out a plain camp ewer. The change, the charged odor of the poison was sharpened in Cheney's nostrils. She dipped a finger in the fluid, held it close to nose. Paul's nose. The skin along the bridge of his nose wrinkled slightly. Slowly, the nostrils flared. Jessica gasped. Holy shit! That's it. A little smelling salts. <laughs> A little smelling salt. That's all. That's it. Paul's eyes flew open. He started upward at Cheney. It is not necessary for her to change the water, he said. Right? Because I think they were going to do something where she wanted just going to change the water. They were going to give him more, and then because Jessica takes it and puts it in her mouth, and she starts to. Her body it. instantly starts to go and attack it and change it. Really cool Benny Jesuit shit. So fucking cool. Yeah. And then Paul's like, no, 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 not necessary. Right. Yeah, and she's like, oh, exactly. okay. <laughs> I love it. I love this moment where they're like, you drank the sacred water, only a drop of it. How could you do such a <laughs> foolish thing? <laughs> Dude. And I love the moment when he, you know, they're, they're, they're each just kind of glaring and like, well, wh- how could you do this? Even, even one drop, it's sacred and you know, you can't. Mm-hmm. And he says, when I had the drop in my mouth, when I felt it and smelled it, when I knew what it was doing to me, then I knew I could do the thing that you have done. Mm-hmm. Your Bene Gesserit proctors speak of the Kwisatz Haderach, but they cannot begin to guess the many places I have been. It's so cool. So, yeah, but yeah he talks about is... in the few minutes, not realizing he's been out for three weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. And then doesn't he do, he, I think he takes another drop, he grabs it. Yeah. He drinks it. He grabs it again. You've been in a coma for three weeks, right? But uh, but he's like, but I only took it a moment ago. And they're like, no, no, no. Three weeks of fear for me, Jessica's telling him. <laughs> yeah. he's, like, but it, he's like, it was a drop. I converted. I changed water of life. And before Chainer just could stop him, he dipped his hand in the ewer, placed it on the floor beside him, and brought the dripping hand to his mouth and swallowed more. Boom. And they're like, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, Jessica screamed. Indeed. <laughs> I love this. This is just, this is good stuff, man. You speak of a place where you cannot enter, this place which the Reverend Mother cannot face. Show it to me. And this is him speaking aloud. And he, he kind of goes after his mom a little bit here, right? This is powerful yeah. stuff. Um, she shakes her head terrified. He's like, show it to me, commands. She says no, but she cannot escape him. Bludgeoned by the terrible force of him, she closed her eyes and focused in with the direction that is dark. Paul's consciousness flowed through and around her and into the darkness. She glimpsed the place dimly before her mind blanked itself away from the terror. Without knowing why, her whole being trembled at what she had seen, a region where a wind blew and sparks glared, where rings of light expanded and contracted, where rows of tumescent white shapes flowed over and under and around the lights driven by darkness and wind out of nowhere. Presently, she opened her eyes, saw Paul staring at her, he still held her hand, but the terrible rapport was gone. She quieted her trembling. Paul released her hand. It was as though some crutch had been removed. She staggered up and back, would have fallen had not Cheney jumped to support her. Wow. How are they going to do that shit in the movie, man? I have no <laughs> unearthly idea. Oh, that's going to be a lot of fucking crazy CG. He's seen the truth in the water of life. And Jessica says he has just seen. Yeah. Right? So it yeah. is true. 
He is the Kwisatz Hatteras. That's that's her revelation here. She realized this is it. He was it, he was the fact out of the Bane Gesserit dream, and the fact gave her no peace. I'm sure. <laughs> oh, man. When your son is the fulfillment of a prophecy that's going to take over who knows how much of the galaxy, uh, it's a little unnerving. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And there's quite a bit of dialogue here, and uh, but but I think it's probably important, so pardon my indulgence, but Paul says, there is in each of us an ancient force that takes and an ancient force that gives. I love this part. A man finds little difficulty facing that place within himself where the taking force dwells, but it's almost impossible for him to see into the giving force without changing onto something other than him. For a woman, the situation is reversed. These things are so ancient within us that they're grounded into each separate cell of our bodies. We're shaped by such forces. You can say to yourself, yes, I see how such a thing may be. But when you look inward and confront the raw force of your own life, unshielded, you see peril. You see that this could overwhelm you. The greatest peril to the giver is the force that takes. The greatest peril to the taker is the force that gives. It's as easy to be overwhelmed by giving as by taking. And when Jessica says, well, which are you? He says, I'm at the fulcrum. I cannot give without taking. I cannot take without giving. Mm. This gets back into the both, both the masculine and the feminine, seeing the past, the present, or the future, the balance, the middle, in the center, that which yeah. is the balance that he feels. Right. Pretty wild, man. That's intense. It's, a, it's, an amazing, it's an amazing way of representing, I think, prescience and the ability to, to see these things, that, that he is the balancer between all of these ideas, between between genders between realities in a sense like you know and timelines um the the fact that he is at the middle of it and has to consciously balance his place within it um I it's think wild is interesting yeah. even on the most basic sophomoric level if i give you a if i if you and i are standing across from each other and i give you a glass of water you take the glass of water <laughs> It's it's that basic. Is that am I am I crazy? You are taking, but only because I am giving, right? Yeah. In this moment, you're the taker. I'm the giver. That's there's there is a there is a symbiotic relationship there that's important. And what Paul is suggesting is you can't just be one. You can't just be the taker always or the giver always. And that's what he means. Like I find myself at the fulcrum of this reality. I think that's. I think that's fascinating for the position he's in as the leader of these people. You can't just take from them. You can't just give to them. You have to somehow balance that and be the fulcrum in the center. And I think that's fucking awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And what I, what I love is this moment, this turn where, you know, uh, Jessica says, you have seen the future, Paul. Will you say what you have seen? <laughs> and he replies, not the future. I've seen the now. He forced himself to a sitting position, waved Cheney aside as, he sh as she moved to help him. The space above Arrakis is filled with the ships of the guild. <laughs> Jessica trembled at the certainty in his voice. Indeed. The Padishah Emperor himself is there. Ooh. Five legions. Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Thufur Hawat. The great houses are waiting. He knows. Seven ships jammed with every conscript he could muster. Yep. Ooh. 
For what are they waiting? Jessica manages. Paul looked at her. For the guild's permission to land, the guild will strand on Arrakis any force that lands without permission. The guild's protecting us, Jessica asks. Protecting us? The guild itself caused this by spreading tales about what we do here and by reducing troop transport fares to a point where even the poorest houses are up there now waiting for us. Jessica noted the lack of bitterness in his tone, wondering at it. She couldn't doubt his words. They had that same intensity. Paul took a breath, said, Mother, you must change a quantity of the water for us. We need the catalyst. Cheney have a scout force sent out to find a pre-spice mass. If we plant a quantity of life, a quantity of the water of life above a pre-spice mass, do you know what will happen? The water of death. It'd be a chain reaction, spreading death among the little lakers, killing makers, Killing a vector of the life cycle that includes the spice in the makers, Arrakis will become a des- we will become a true desolation without spice or maker. He who can destroy a thing has the real control of it. We can destroy the spice. Jessica's like Jesus Christ, what's stopping <laughs> them? And she and he says they're searching for me. Think of that: the finest skilled navigators, men who can quest ahead through time to find the safest course for the fastest highliners, all of them seeking me and unable to find me. How they tremble. They know I have their secret here. Without the spice, they're blind. <laughs> so this gives us insight into the guild a little because now the guild, according to Paul, su- suspects that he knows that he can destroy this place, which is yeah. why they haven't just made a move yet. And right. that is intense. The fact that he's saying, I can dis- think about what, Think about the ramifications for the Imperium at large. Yeah. Their their empire is built upon a foundation of the spice for all yes. trade, for all yes. fucking trade. What, what I love here, too, is I like that Paul is realizing that he can see the now. Earlier in the novel, he was going, I don't know if I'm seeing the past or the present or the future. I'm confused. We talked about how that would be confusing, this prescience. You wouldn't know if you if you saw... The now, if you, if, if you could see the future as clear as the now, or if you could see the past as clear as the now, and you could see all three as clear as the now, and you got bombarded with visions, you might struggle with a lack of experience in your, with your ability to know which was which. Yeah. Right? We know, we experience the now very powerfully. Sometimes we experience the past powerfully by way of certain memories that trigger us. But by and large... We can only account for the immediate with certainty, right? Right. Because the past becomes faded in our memory. And you never really experience the future, not to get too philosophical, because when you do, it's the present, right? (laughs) Exactly. Now, imagine if you saw all three equally, with equal clarity. You wouldn't (laughs) know. You'd be like, what is happening? (laughs) But now it appears he's like, because he says it with such confidence. He goes, now I'm seeing the now. The Highliners are above us. The Imperium is up there. They're ready to come. And I'll tell you what's stopping them. They know I got the dagger at the throat of their entire Imperium, their entire ability to transport their ships, to navigate space. Everything that connects them, I control here. And he says... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, he says, the future is becoming as muddled for the Guild as it is for me. (laughs) The lines of vision are narrowing. Everything focuses here where the spice is where they've dared not interfere before because to interfere was to lose what they must have. But now they're desperate. Yeah. All paths lead into darkness. So the future is now as uncertain as it's ever been. We, Indeed. 
he looks forward to the future and he sees darkness. That's all. And yeah. so the future has yet to be decided. This is all where the culmination is taking us. Indeed. And I like that because it's it, one of the things we know is that Raban mismanaged this planet. He mismanaged production of spice, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who would skim off the top, who would make money. Think of, think of how unpopular Raban is right now. Just among constituents who relied on the spice before his presence, right? People right. getting their palms greased, people being able to make stockpiles of it. That's something Leto noticed early. He's like, whoever's got stockpiles, those are the people we need to not trust, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> because they were getting extra handouts and they're going to be pissed off because they know we're not going to give that to them. So if anybody's hoarding spice, that's a potential enemy, right? Yeah. Now, exactly. think about Raban. He's failing at this. He's not doing a good job at this. He's, you're, you're, it's, this is, to go back, we've used the mafia as an example before. This guy's not earning. He's giving mm-hmm. light, he's, he's sending light envelopes up the chain of command. This sucks. You're, you're not missing earning. a couple of 20s there. Missing a couple of 20s, it looks right. like. Right, <laughs> you're, you're, you're not managing your business well. You're not managing your business well. And the guild cares about your results. Exactly. Your results matter deeply to the guild. And the, the guild spacing is your guild's number power one. is this planet, and Raban is fucking it up. Yeah. And, Har- and, and Vladimir, who's up there with Shaddam, according to Paul, is probably like, I can't wait to come in and rescue this place. Yay. <laughs> Be the big hero. And, you know, install Fade, so he says, right? Right. <laughs> but, yeah, but I like this part, because I like how Paul's like, well, I don't know. I don't know the future right now. This is... We're at this is a precipice. We're leading into the end. The final three chapters, Matt. Oh, I'm so fucking pumped, dude. That's it. I can't wait. The the, the aspect of Dune, the novel that I know the least about is the next three chapters. Indeed. I know a little bit about the the stuff that happens with Fade a little bit. Um, you know, mostly from my my viewing of of the original David Lynch movie. Um, so I know how some things kind of go down. But I know the movie is significantly different from the book yeah. um, when it comes to the ending. So Indeed. I cannot wait to see what happens next. I'm fucking ready. Yeah, man. These are very good chapters. That last chapter is pretty wild. It's Paul. It's this final moment where Paul's like, I'm going to take the water of life because if I'm, am I the Kwisaj Haderach or not? Yeah. And he does know. it. He doesn't tell anybody. He just does it. And then they find him just zoned out, just baked, just barbecued, laying <laughs> barbecued, <there. laughs> like going there's the guilds flying above us. I see everything. I see it all. <laughs> it's fucking one million bombs, man. <laughs> but yeah, man, I like all this. I, I I like a lot of this. That 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 the way you pointed it out, I believe, is in chapter forty four. That moment where Gurney. And Paul and Jessica just get to sit and listen to the Balisette. What a beautiful moment. Yeah. What a beautiful moment for, for them just to do something that they haven't done in a long time together. Right. Right. I really like it. That it, it, was, what's crazy about it, man, is this is, this is something that happens to us, right? There was a moment where you were a kid and it was the last time you played with your friends. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Think about that. Where the, few, where the present becomes the past. There's a, there's a moment where you had a conversation with somebody and you haven't talked to them since, or you haven't seen them since. There was a moment where you, you walked out of, you, you left your, 
you, you, you said goodbye to your high school and summer came and you never saw that guy again or that girl again. That's crazy, right? <laughs> in this one, it's, we were living this lifestyle. This is what we did. And then one day it was gone, gone. Swept away. Swept away from UA's treachery. One day we were listening to Gurney play the ballast set and it was fun. And the next day we didn't hear it again ever and never thought we would. Yeah. Think of how emotional it's going to be for them just to sit there and listen to him play that music. That is a wonderful opportunity for an emotional scene in the picture. Totally. A great opportunity for that. And that's, that's, that's what this book does, man. It makes you think there's a ton. And you know, I I go back, I listen to these episodes and I'm like, we missed a ton. Oh, I know. Always. It's It's so dense. It's so dense. It's it's just, there's so much. In the best way. In the best way. Indeed. But, um, but this has been a ton of fun. And uh, yeah, man, we're looking at our final episode with the last three chapters. I know. We finally made it. <laughs> we did. And if I'm being honest with you, because it's er, the beginning of November, my guess is we're probably going to have to hold off till December, but I don't know. I want to do it before the end of the year. That's my goal. For we sure. Two yeah. months to do we one episode. It's only we three chapters. <laughs> <laughs> we got this, baby. We and got you this. Know, we'll, we'll recap and that. We'll probably be able to have a longer episode, but they always are in you know, two to three hours. They're long apps, but it's true. There's a long time coming. I'm happy and I'm looking forward to... Uh, I'm looking forward to wrapping this up. It's been a blast, buddy. Any final thoughts yeah. on these three chapters before we head out? Ah, I'm just looking forward to where everything's going. Everything feels like we are on a track now at this point. Like there is something inevitable we are heading towards. Um, and it feels like momentum is picking up and it were, the temperature is rising. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just excited. I'm ready to see the culmination. It has a biblical uh, intensity to it, as it were. Yeah. Oh, it's some like ancient revenge, you Indeed. know, fathers and sons taking, you know, avenging each other kind of shit going on here. I love it. I, maybe one of the first chapters, but the art of Kenley, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. The, that, that vendetta between Harkonnen and, and Atreides, it goes much deeper than Paul Atreides' life. Yeah. Exactly. It dwarfs his life. <laughs> it goes way back. <laughs> fucking wild to think about. All right, well, this is it. We're going to wrap it up here. Thank you guys for listening. I believe this is our 12th episode, and we'll be coming at you for our final episode in uh, in a few weeks' time, I guess. Um, I, I know we don't release them when we said we're going to. I apologize, but we're very busy, and there's lots of programming at LSG Media. I do two other shows plus this one, so and uh, we're busy folks. So I appreciate your patience. The good news is if you're finding us for the first time, you don't give a shit because you've just found them all, and you're listening to them all at once. And- <laughs> Much like our Battlestar Galactica podcast, which is called Recommissioned. Check it out if you're into it. This will just be out there for you to discover and enjoy. Absolutely. All right. We are going to get out of here. Thank you guys so much. It's been a blast. You've been listening to Mind Killer, a Dune podcast by LSG Media. For information on upcoming chapters and to continue the conversation, visit us on Discord at libertystreetgeek.net slash Discord.